3: i and I'm reporting a code 46 violation.
4: Genetic codes will decide everything.
3: There's been a fatality in Asia. Someone died yesterday.
4: I heard the way you live. How do people live out here? It's not living, just the existing. Where you can travel.
3: You're not gathered
1: for the Azia area. Yeah, but I, I don't want to be here. I want to leave. I want to go home. Who you can love. Tell me what you're doing later tonight.
3: Is that a question or an invitation?
1: And who you can't.
5: What's your relationship to this woman?
1: I just want to know about her.
5: So am I under surveillance? Any liaison would be a code 46 violation. How can that be? Will you say with me?
1: Now, an investigator with a unique gift. Your palabras is carry four.
3: How did you know that?
1: I listened to you while you weren't speaking. ...is about to forget everything he knows... I think he had an accomplice. There was a woman here last time. She's
4: gone. What do you mean gone? She has been relocated. ...to save the woman he loves. I need to speak to Miss Gonzalez alone. You have
3: no authorization.
4: In the last 14 days, three people have died.
3: Unfortunately, some of them won't make it. Why did you remove her from
1: Milan Clinic? She was a suspect. Was?
5: Is. Yes.
3: It's a single exit cover. Gracias. What does he remember about the crash?
5: As far as he's concerned, he never went to Jabal Ali. Academy Award winner,
1: Tim Robbins. Do you have evidence? I don't need to give you evidence. It's intuition you're paying for. Academy Award nominee Samantha Morton.
3: Every time I ever imagined this, I always imagine being with you.
1: How long has Miss Gonzalez been pregnant? I never said that. At all.
3: She violated Code 46.
1: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. To me once again, is Mr. Jedediah Ayers.
6: I regard Anne of Green Gables as an erotic classic.
1: Also joining us is Mr. Dylan Davis. Welcome from the fascist state of Texas. We are continuing Sci-Fi July with a look at Michael Winterbottom's Code 46, the sequel to Code 45 of the long-running Code series, written by Frank Catrell Boyce and produced by Andrew Eaton, who we will hear from later in the show. The film stars Tim Robbins as William Geld, a fraud investigator who travels to Shanghai to interview the employees of The Sphinx, a company that produces... Well, essentially, they are letters of transit. Meanwhile, Samantha Morton plays Maria Gonzalez, the forger of these letters of transit, which in the film's parlance are called papels. We will be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, please watch the film and come back after you have. We will still be here. So Jedediah, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think?
6: I saw it not in theaters, but I saw it pretty soon when it was released on video and i was immediately hypnotized i just i thought it was a really unique vision of the future you know most of i hadn't seen a whole lot of i don't know maybe until the end of the world comes to mind as something set in the future but still recognizable as as the the present uh or, or having a relationship to the present uh I was still fairly young when I saw that, but I, I watched until the end of the world over and over and over, and I thought that this had a, a similar sort of uh, vibe. Of course, since then I've, I've seen many more movies, and, and I understand it, but it still holds up, I think, really well as as a near future sci-fi movie. And I really enjoyed the um, all the little uh, the little touches that I'm sure we'll get into. So yeah, it was it was kind of an instant favorite and started me seeking out all the Michael Winterbottom I could I could find.
1: And Dylan, how about yourself?
0: I actually am probably a pretty rare bird. I saw this in the theater. It might have been the weekend that it opened because I we never saw it again. It had a very limited release, and there was an AMC 30 by my house. This was back when I was a school teacher, and every Sunday I would go down to the AMC 30, and I would buy the the first ticket for whatever movie started at 1030 or 1130, and I would just jump from screen to screen to screen without paying because I was a poor public school teacher. And Code 46 was in there somewhere, and I didn't know what it was. I only had the time, and I saw Tim Robbins on the poster, so I decided to take a chance. So I was a conservative Republican at the time. So it's a huge leap to go into a Tim Robbins movie back then. I mean, let's, let's face it. But I really enjoyed it. I identified it as a future noir like Blade Runner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I have to admit, I did not know what the hell was going on. And I went home and started telling my wife about it. And my wife was the one who identified it as an Oedipus story. And the more I thought about it, when it came out on DVD, I saw it in a in a discount rack, and I immediately picked it up and watched it again. And I watched it for a third time a couple of weeks ago, and then again last night. So I've seen it four times now. I did like it. I wouldn't rank it at the top of Winterbottom's work. Um, I saw Welcome to Sarajevo back in the, in the 90s, I think it was, and I I thought that was an exceptional film. And I saw 24 hour party people last week and I thought that was brilliant. So I wouldn't say that it's his best, but I haven't nine songs has to be his worst probably, you know, out of, out of his, auvoir. but I I did like code 46 quite a bit, but it's, it's in the middle.
1: I must've been pretty lucky because I found this also in a discount bin did not see this theatrically. I didn't even really remember this being released And when I picked it up for pretty cheap, and I think it was because it was sci-fi and it was Tim Robbins, I said, sure, let's give it a shot and really enjoyed this the very first time I saw it. And it's kind of stuck with me all these years later. It's one of those movies that to me, it feels like it's part of a bigger universe. When I was watching it, I was just convinced That there must be a book that this was based on. And I kept looking for the book only to realize, no, this was just, and I put that in quotes, just a screenplay. But it feels like such a rich world that I would love to explore that Code 46 world even more. But just this story that we're brought of William and Maria, I really liked it. I love the voiceover. I love that the voiceover is done in second person, that it is talking to William from Maria that it's this note from some point and we don't really know exactly when that is that they play with memory that they play yes with the edible themes that we have this weird polyglot language that's going on and they just treat it like nothing nobody says anything there's no Mary Sue in here for us to explain things to it's just a matter of like oh yeah we are in this world even when we see the title of the film we see it in many languages and then right from the beginning. As soon as Maria starts to narrate the story, she's just dropping in little terms, you know, there is Spanish in here, there's Chinese, there's French, there's German, all of this stuff. We are in a global world, which is a little bit of a oxymoron, but here we are, we're in this much more of an inclusive world and the language reflects that. Inclusive as far as language, very exclusive as far as there's inside and outside and this whole thing of getting into places, travel becomes this big premium in here, being allowed to, basically being allowed to exist and having the right to exist and being allowed to free travel. It's really pretty amazing And that the whole movie starts off with this whole conceit about Code 46. The heart of the movie is this idea of the papels and uh, being able to give these papels to people who really want to do this traveling and who need to go to other places and aren't allowed either via economics or via basically via their genetics. And that plays into what Code 46 is, this whole idea of there's so much in vitro fertilization that's happened in the world that you really have to be very careful about who you sleep with because you don't want to sleep with somebody who's got Genes that are too close to yours. And if you start to get too close, once you get to 25, 50, or 100% match, then you're real trouble. You've violated code 46.
0: It's very similar to Blade Runner in that way the, the retrofitting and uh, the world building in that way.
6: I uh, compare it in my mind. I think of it as belonging to a, um, a family of films that include like uh, Oliver uh, C.S.'s demon lover and boarding gate and, and abel ferrara's new rose hotels these sort of like mike you were saying the very open open international borders. people kind of travel i mean travel is a, a theme in this one but the it, crossing international borders is is not uh, it, things are very much globalized as far as geography but but it's It's corporations and and things like that that are are kind of the new countries, the new superpowers in these these world, and the sort of espionage and and things like that that go on is is all sort of corporate rather than uh, rather than nationalistic. And those films all have a sort of similar vibe, the sort of lo-fi with great evocative soundtracks too this one does. I really, really enjoy the uh, the, the soundtrack on this one the the
0: score the score is marvelous by the the free association
1: i think it is it's one of those very clever movies too that uses geography and mixes up geography so you've got some scenes that are shot in shanghai you've got some that are shot in seattle some that are shot in hong kong and the way that we mix a lot of these things together and that's just like a small example because we've also got india and dubai and just all of these places that are all kind of mixed together. So a lot of this takes place in Shanghai, but there are moments where like you'll get on a train and when you get off the train, it's a Hong Kong set, but you don't necessarily know that unless you've seen a lot of these places, you don't, you don't necessarily know where you're at. It keeps you guessing a lot. For me, I was very fortunate because I'm like, Oh, well, there's Pearl Tower. There's the bun. There's this kind of stuff. So I'm seeing Shanghai, but then towards the end, there's a shot that's in a train station. I'm like, that doesn't look familiar, then only to find out, no, that's Hong Kong. Or, you know, these things that are supposed to be in one city are actually in another. And they use architecture a lot to paint this world, like very unusual architecture. Kind of reminded me of Gattaca a little bit and that whole idea of like the building where Ethan Hawke works and it's just very modern. You've got one shot in this film of Tim Robbins and it's from above and it's just all of these escalators. And it's just this like almost M.C. Escher painting, but instead it's just real life with all of these escalators and you almost get lost in it. It's just really smart the way that they use the architecture to build this foreign yet familiar, as you said, Jed, this foreign yet familiar world.
6: Yeah. The architecture is extremely, extremely uh, important to the, uh, the film, just the the feeling of being these little organic beings in the middle of this kind of steel and glass jungle that that's beautiful though it's it doesn't seem you know it's not brutalist and it's not um it's very elegant and very uh kind of inspi- inspiring but but definitely not not natural and 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 he's just this this tiny speck walking around i think of that scene early on where he's just opening credits i think he's walking into the hotel and it's just a shot of him it looks like just walking in circles around this giant you know open open space uh and, and it, it's, it's really quite beautiful, I
0: think. There's a lot of open spaces in the movie, and that might have something to do with this, this theory of outside versus inside. And there's definite borders going on. And Winterbottom has a lot of borders in a lot of his movies. And he's interested in this exchange from one to the other. Big spaces like the hotel lobby versus really small spaces like Maria's apartment, for example, which looks like a closet, to be honest. So you see a lot of that going on. And as far as the environment is, is concerned, I, I I know, Mike, that when you re this, you and I have both been to Shanghai. And that first take or shot of him in the airplane, when he looks out and it's a desert, there is no desert in Eastern China at all. And you immediately know something is wrong. I went to China in the 90s. So it was really jarring to me. And then just a few scenes later, you're in the Boond. And the Boond back then when I was there was had not changed in 100 years since since the nationalists burnt it down in the 30s and across the river like the pearl was there the orb but everything else was you know it was the the Abu Dhabi of of the early 2000s basically and so I was shocked actually in 2003 or 2004 whenever this was released and I saw it that weekend I was shocked to see how in five or six years Shanghai had just I shot to the sky I couldn't believe the the amount of building that they and the money that they had thrown into that free economic zone, which is that square around the city that the Communist Party decides the free market will will always reign. And we, we see the same thing in Abu Dhabi, like I said, 10 years later. It really, really enabled Winterbottom to have this very distinct view and then drop everything, move 500 miles. And like you said, Mike, shoot a lot in Hong Kong. A lot of the market scenes are in Hong Kong. One of the problem I had actually with the Shanghai movement was inside, inside Shanghai didn't seem to be a whole lot of Chinese people. They all had uh, Mexican names (laughs) and we have a transitory society even today. And and we should look forward to that in the future. I think it's going to happen. But this idea that there would be no Asians in Asia, I don't think that's going to happen. The idea of Chinese adopting Spanish slang, that's bizarre. That wasn't so bizarre that it pulled me out of the sci-fi experience. It, it made it even even more tactile. It gave it more texture verbally to what was going on visually. And I think it, it succeeded rather well. But the airport scene, you know, is the Hong Kong Lantau Airport. Like anyone who's been to that airport can instantly recognize that. You know, it's it's an airport for dummies, seven languages on every sign, et cetera, et cetera. And then they drop everything and go to uh, Jebel Ali. Uh, for all of these desert shots and and you're right Jedediah, the contrast to that architecture the outside the alfuera versus the inside is is pretty striking the way that that was designed and i understand from one of the behind the scenes documentary on the disc that they shot all of the exterior scenes and lobby shots uh, in in china india and dubai and hong kong they did all of that inside 3 weeks like that's shocking even for an for an
1: indie budget in a film that's i can't believe they did that Just the logistics alone, I mean, it's yeah, it's amazing. And just being able to shoot stuff inside of communist China, just the paperwork alone must have been crazy to do that. Even just go as a tourist to have to fill out all the visa stuff and get all of that stuff going. I mean, that's one of the, I, I can't remember how many countries that you need to have visas to get into these days, but it's definitely one of the tougher places to actually get in.
0: Yeah, I had to go to the, the consulate in Houston, the Chinese consulate in Houston, to get my visa to go to China all three times that I went. And the second time I went, I went to Tibet. So I had to get a special permit to go to Tibet. And that was not easy. And that was you know, an eight-week wait just, just to do that. And it meant special screening, which meant that the, the Chinese equivalent of the FSB was going through my records. And I had to submit to an FBI test a background check that would be turned over to Chinese intelligence that would allow me to go in Tibet like this, you know, this, this idea was crazy. So the idea in code 46 of you need a papel in order to gain cover, to move to that. That's not an outrageous idea. If you're living in the people's Republic, that's, that's actually pretty solid. I mean, it's not exactly the way things run, but it's pretty close. You can't leave communist China without prior approval. Even if you're a citizen there, you need permission to leave. It's not like it is in the United States of, oh, well, you want to go to the Emirates? Well, you go right ahead. Oh, you can't get in? Well, that's the Emirates problem after you got there. You have to get on a flight and go back. It's the same to, to go to Canada, right? I can get on a flight and I can fly to Montreal. And if they don't want to let me in, then it's it's my
1: expense to come back. think, too, when this was... Released 2003. I mean, by this time, the European Union is making it very easy now to go from country to country to country. So you've got that porousness, but then at the same time, you're locking down a lot of stuff. This is obviously post 9 11. So you've got that. I'm trying to remember when Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, when that happened, which makes stuff even more difficult. I think that was also 2001. So it's just. All of these restrictions are being put onto some travel while others are loosening up. So it's just remarkable. And then you still have that today. I mean, now if you want to travel, not only do you have to for certain countries get your visa in line, but now, you know, you have your second form of identification, which is your a vaccination card. So just even for, you know, here in Detroit, it used to be so easy to cross the board over into Windsor and into Toronto. But now it's like, nope, you got to go to the app. You got to have your vaccine card. You got to do this. You got to have this QR code. You had to get that signed, scanned. You have to do all of these extra things now. So it's just becoming more and more of this arduous process. I mean, maybe it should have been in the first place, but It's very odd now. It feels like we're almost moving more towards this Code 46 world. And last summer, in
0: order to gain entry into Canada, after you gained entry, after they let you in, after all of that paperwork, you had to sit in your house or a hotel room for 18 days. And you had to prove to the government that you could have supplies brought to you and that you could afford to have all of that. So the Canadian government was making sure your bank account had the threshold to support your lifestyle for that amount of time. Thinking about that six months later, this is also before Looper Code 46, right? Looper took advantage of the Chinese film tax laws, and China was begging people to come and shoot movies in Shanghai. And they shot Looper there. They moved it from France. and They changed the script. And Ryan Johnson has said many times, I don't regret doing it. I think it helped the film. And I think that it might have. It points easterly. In a, in a way that society in general in the world is, is heading towards. But I do remember in that, that contrast of, of going to, say, Canada last summer, you know, I went to Germany at the height of the Iraq War for business travel. And I was actually on my way to Cairo, and I had a four-hour layover in Germany. I was a smoker at the time. And the border guard did not want to let me in. He didn't want to let me out of Frankfurt Airport. And I had this argument with him, Was like, I don't understand. I'm not working. As far as legal-wise, I'm a tourist. I should be able to walk in and out of the EU within 90 days. And it took me a long time, because I'm a dumb American, to figure out what was going on. And it had nothing to do with me. And it had everything to do with Iraq. But even he could not hold me or deny me entry without a specific reason. And those reasons are becoming more and more numerous.
1: And now we need a papel. Now we need cover. I mean, the setting of this whole inside versus outside, because one of the first things we see is Tim Robbins, after he lands, he's in this limo and he's being driven from the outside to the inside. They have this checkpoint. And so as soon as I see this checkpoint, I'm thinking, well, of course, the Mexican-US border, but I'm really thinking more of like Checkpoint Charlie kind of stuff and what it was like when we had the East-West divide with the Berlin Wall. And so this reminds me of things like a timing, essential a obsession, or even possession, where you have very much have this whole idea of there's something on that other side of the wall. And whether it is the Cursed Earth from Judge Dredd, which a lot of this, when you're on the outside, it looks like the Cursed Earth, or on the inside where you've got the Walled Cities and this whole idea of passing from one area to another and yeah you can only do that if you have that cover if you have the papel and then if you're if you let that run out you're not even allowed to leave i do like the scene later on in the film where he is trying to get back to seattle and it's like no sorry you don't have cover now you can't leave you have to stay here
6: i enjoyed Every single one of his interactions with people, he's he's trying to get get by bureaucrats, and, and he's successful sometimes, and and not successful others. But every one of those scenes was, uh, I thought, a really great uh, little. It opened up the world. It opened up his character and and, and the complexities of, of, of like being on a virus, and, and 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 I think science fiction and any kind of movie that takes you inside a world that that you don't you don't understand, you don't, you don't know about so much. It's great because they set up the rules, like the official rules, and then they show you the way people actually live. Like there's, there's the way it's supposed to work. And then it's, the, there's the way everybody gets by and the, the, the bribery and the the sort of subtleties of uh, the way they go about the bribery is, is very nice. Uh, I watched the movie several times this week and I, I really, really enjoyed every single one of those scenes.
0: The only thing that kind of bothered me, and this is nitpicking considering the budget that Winterbottom had to deal with, is that the the border looked more like a toll plaza to me. And what is the airport doing outside in the Alfuera? That was kind of confusing and didn't make a lot of sense, but it established the border at all. And what I found really funny was when I was a resident of Canada. I would have to, I lived in Western Canada. I would have to drive to Seattle in order to fly home to Houston because that was cheaper than taking direct flight. Like it was crazy. So after a day of driving, you get to the the border. And when you go into America from Canada, which is a friendly country, probably the friendliest country America has, it felt like driving into Iraq. It was like a border station at Tikrit. They had very clear designations of kill zones. They had cameras at license plate level. You had to stop in the middle of the kill zone and get your picture taken from all sides. Then you had to go and justify your entry. And the border guard looked over your, this is an American customs official, looking at my passport and and pulling it and tearing, almost tearing it to make sure that it was good before he scanned it and hit it with a light. Like I felt like, dude, I'm I'm a sit, like, I know that I'm a resident of Canada, but I'm a citizen of the United States. And I understand that these are procedures they have to go through. But the contrast to that, after I spend two weeks in the States and I come back, I go through the same border station in the same town in Canada. And I am exaggerating when I say it was a wooden shack on a hill with a red coat coming out and saying, hey, come on in, eh? Like, it wasn't that. But the difference between going into Canada and going into the States at the same border crossing, I think it was in Abbotsford, BC. BC, was very astounding to me. And so I recalled that. I I was wondering if Geld is going to the airport and he's leaving into the Alfuera, the security can't be nearly as tight as it is coming into Alfuera, right? And he runs into the same person at the border crossing when he's leaving as he was when he's coming in. And that was kind of confusing. So that guy's on both sides of the border crossing when he hands off the papel.
6: Well, he went looking for him the second time. He had yeah, Yeah. so.
1: All of those interactions that you're talking about, Jedediah, are those are those all with women? I'm trying to think if there's one man amongst those. Uh, yeah, I think they are all all women. Which is interesting in and of itself. Just this relationship that Geld has with women, and especially, obviously, with Maria, but just the way that he's, and especially when she's been exiled and she's at the and I know I'm jumping ahead but when she's at the clinic it's it feels very very gynocentric at that point but yeah all the other people like the the very first woman that he interacts with the one whose password that he guesses or her um her palabra palabra thank you that whole thing and yeah cuz you mentioned the whole idea of the virus so In this world, and I think this is what really caught my attention the very first time I watched it, and I still love this conceit, rather than learning something, you can actually catch a virus or be given a virus, and that will help rewrite your DNA for a little while to help you do things. I really like there's one point where after he meets Maria, he's talking with her, and she's like, oh, yeah, I I took a virus for Mandarin. I could speak Mandarin fluently, but I had no idea what I was saying. And then with him, he has to have a virus for empathy, and it gives him this real superpower of empathy where he can, he does this trick several times where he will have somebody tell him something about themselves. And then he, as he says, I'm listening while you're not speaking. And he's able to figure out all of these things about anybody else that he's speaking to, which is a really good thing when he's doing interviews because he's trying, he's essentially, he's almost like Walter Neff, you know, he's this insurance investigator going out into the world and like, who's doing this counterfeiting and I need to find who this person is. So he interviews all of these people at the Sphinx Corporation, which makes these papellas. He goes in and interviews all of these people and he's able to tell just from what they say, whether they're the person or not. And I really love that whole interview montage, especially the woman who's talking about how sexually excited she is by freckles.
6: I also, it took me a few times watching it because I thought he pulls Anne of Green Gables out of, out of the air. And I was like, Oh, he's well read. And then it took me a few times. I realized, no, he's reading her mind. Like she's the one thinking of (laughs) Anne of Green Gables (laughs) and he's able to it's like he, it's as much a revelation to him as it is to the audience. It's like an Anne of Green Gables, an erotic classic.
0: <laughs> it's very strange uh, supposition there. But, you know, in that same interview montage, it ends on Maria and she has her hands wrapped above her head. And it's like she's making like some sort of spike or or some symbol or in, almost like a unicorn or some sort of horn on, on the top of her head and as if she's marking herself as someone special. I picked up on it. It's very weird.
1: Is there also a unicorn uh, origami tied into that as well? Yeah, another similarity to Blade Runner. Because this is basically, he's almost giving them like a Voight Comp test with this whole empathy thing, which is hilarious. So really good picking up on that. This whole thing, too, where she doesn't really want to answer any questions and the way that she avoids really saying anything about herself, very much like, and we'll talk about the Benedict Wong scene where he only has one answer to every question. And it isn't until he breaks that cycle that William is able to understand what's really going on. So I I really appreciate that she's kind of avoiding things, but he manages to get the beat on her very quickly and really just instantly. If there's one thing that could use a little bit more fleshing out, but he really instantly just falls for this woman, though there are reasons why he falls for her probably quicker than he might for somebody else.
0: Yeah, and that interview that he has with Benedict wong it's, it's more of like an interrogation. That really calls back to me a, more of Blade Runner 2049, which came after Code 46, of course, and establishing that baseline. And Benedict wong it's a great scene with him, by the way. He violates that baseline. And that's when Gail just immediately snaps. I thought that was brilliant.
1: It's so nice seeing this young Benedict Wong and something and I'm just like wow I forgot he was in this when I rewatched it a few months ago I was like oh wow he's and he his role is great and I love him playing with this weird speech impediment that he's got it's like I want to spend more time with this guy
0: Yeah he had a really good performance and he's in 24-hour party people too he's in the background but he's also in Tristan Shandy a cock and bull story he plays like a like a a grip or an AD or something
1: even though William Geld is our main character. Really, I'd say Maria is our main character, especially she's given the the voiceover. And there's so many times that we really diverge from the story just to hear more about her. This whole story, too, about her having a dream every year on her birthday and the way that she's been counting down for what was it 18 years. It's like this whole weird thing that she's got as far as like how many stops away. She has a dream that she's on a subway, which is also interesting that it's a means of transportation. She's dreaming that she's on the subway train and it's a matter of how many stops away it is until she meets her fate. And I really like that. She's like, when it comes to this is the year where she can finally meet her fate. She's like, I don't want to meet my fate. Who wants that anyway? I just, I'm going to stay up as long as I can and just fall asleep and try to sleep right through it. And I don't want to know what my fate is. That's a really interesting way of going about it because it seems like that would be your obsession. Like I have to have to meet my fe- fate that day. And then of course, he follows her onto a subway train after they have that interview.
6: It's a really smart subtextual setup of the the theme of the movie, he works for the Sphinx, who can, with enough information, determine anyone's fate. and she rejects all of that. It reminded me very much of a um, actually, if I were to describe the movie to somebody, I would say it's almost like a mashup of of like a William Gibson novel and a Graham Green novel, where, you know, Graham Green's got all these bureaucrats uh, working in in exotic lands. Ah, uh, very much committed to their their job, and who get corrupted or opened up, or their their worldview is is destroyed by by a woman who they 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 shouldn't love, and they they can't help it, and um. Uh, she, so she kind of represents the opposite of everything that he does, everything that he's about his, his whole, it's not even that the Sphinx is, is portrayed as, as evil or something like that. It's just sort of a, well, there's this way of living and there's this way of living. And she's, uh, she's so antithetical to everything uh, that he comes from. He's coming, tackling his life in one way and she's, she's representing, you know, sort of a, a different way of, of, of living that, you know, he, he reads that Nietzsche quote in her, her apartment And one's friend, once you'll have his best enemy and you'll be closest to him with thy heart when you resist him, something like that, which I want to come back to later too, but that, that's really the two people who are, they're meeting from absolute opposite viewpoints and, and uh, yeah, the, the slow kind of turning of, of him is, is, is the movie. It, it, and it, it's quite, it's quite beautiful. I,
0: think. I Googled that passage from Nietzsche and I was a philosophy major in my bachelor's. I Googled it and Nietzsche didn't come up at all. And in, instead the book of Psalms came up and I was spending way too much time on that. Like that was keeping me up at night. Like what is, what is uh, his voice, right? Screenwriter. What was he trying to say when he put that in? And I still
1: don't know. Well, it's kind of that mashup again. Oh, it's supposed to be Nietzsche. No, it's actually Psalms. You know, oh, it's uh, Shanghai. No, it's actually Hong Kong. Or in the Big Lebowski. It's a pomeranian. No, it's not. It's a
0: terrier. What Jedediah was saying before uh, about Maria and where she fits in the story, he hit right on to Robert Ebert, who had this didn't like the film. Uh, Roger Ebert, I'm sorry, who didn't like the film. He actually wrote, he said, the problem with Code 46 is that the movie filled with ideas and imagination is murky in its rules and its intentions. I cannot say I understand the hows and the why of this future world, nor do I much care since it's mostly a clever backdrop to a love affair that would easily teleport to many other genres. Investigator falls in love with mystery woman, helps her commit crime risks being left hanging out to dry. That is double indemnity. That's Graham green. That's film noir. That's the whole thing, right? Like she is the criminal she soaks him in to being a criminal. That's out of the past. That's, you know, a thousand films.
1: The crimes, quote unquote, take place at a bar, K-pop bar in this instance, or KTV, I should say, and having, you know, him there while she's handing over these letters of transit to go back to Casablanca when he's, She's handing over these papels to Damien, and she's like, oh, yeah, no, this is William. Basically, he's in on it. It's really okay. And making him a co-conspirator at that point, it's like, okay, yeah, we've, we've seen this before. But I really appreciate the twist that they've put on all this stuff. I don't think that is just... It is a noir story, but inside of such a rich world that I want to spend more time in this world. I mean, it's a shitty world. It's a dystopian world, but it's so fascinating to me, all of these things. Yeah, it is murky, but I like the murk. I like that we're just thrown into this. And for me, this is a movie that takes a few viewings before you start to really piece it together.
0: This is one of those films where where everything that Winterbottom is showing you, there's three or four things going on that you want to find out. Like you were saying, Mike, how does this world operate? Why is there a Code 40? Like who came up with Code 46 to begin with? You mentioned Gattaca before, and that perfectly fits in the circle with with these films. I don't know if Gattaca is before or after this, but it, it does seem
1: to belong. 1997.
6: Yeah, Gattaca, uh, the Adjustment Bureau, Minority Report, of course, still having, you know, which is all about knowing things that haven't happened yet are you gonna base your life around this thing that you don't understand but you feel like you're fated to or are you going to go about your your business uh, letting your instincts lead you and it's uh, yeah it is uh, interesting even uh, like children of men all these movies about strict control over who you can be with and yeah the uh, the other one that uh came to mind that i actually watched as a double feature this week was uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where they have their memories erased and they still come together again and, uh, Yeah, i thought that was that was a really uh nice pairing
1: i wasn't sure with minority report i wasn't sure if it was just samantha morton with the short hair or if there really was more to it but i can see your point with how that goes and it's interesting you mentioned a few Philip K. Dick things. We've talked about Blade Runner a little bit. I mean, I've, I've said in the past that there was a long time ago I wanted to write an article called Feels Like Dick, which is just movies that feel like they're Philip K. Dick, but they're not. But my God, this one would be right there front and center because it really has that feel to it. And especially once we get to the twist of the film, which... All right, I gave you spoiler warnings earlier, but here it comes, folks. So we eventually find out that they are in violation of Code 46. He ends up sleeping with her. He goes back to Seattle. He comes back because he let her go, basically, and his boss calls him on it. Now he's got to go back and, and, I don't know, arrest her or what he's planning on doing, because when he gets back, plans don't go as they should, and he finds that she's not around. She's pregnant. He finds that out from Benedict Wong through the empathy virus, and she has been taken to a place to have an abortion because, yep, you guessed it, she's got the same DNA as his mother. So that's where the Oedipal story comes into it, that there's this theory about how you go for people that are like you, whether it's in looks or attitude or whatever. There's a theory in art.
5: That the Mona Lisa was really a feminized version of Leonardo da Vinci himself. Concept suggests deep down we're all narcissists. Yeah. What attracts
1: us the most is ourselves. Right down to the last chromosome. They are wonderful match. And he's right there at this woman. And she's basically his mother. For all intents and purposes, the DNA is exactly the same.
0: Well, and that's where the movie gets its title from, 46 being 23 times 2, which is the chromosomes you have. And you know, this is a breeding strategy. I read in one of the reviews that we were all circulating that it wasn't, it wasn't racist, but it was a form of quality control for human beings, right? And that, again, plays into the border, who is inside and who is outside. But I did Google Code 46, and I turned off the filter for film and cinema. And I found a law in Germany that is rather old, and its Penal Code 46 provides only one general and partially contradictory rule. The offender's blameworthiness shall be the basis of sentencing. The court shall take into account the effects that the punishment is expected to have on the offender's future life. Well, not to get too feminist here, but who broke the law here, really? I mean, Code 46 being the law, he broke it twice and she paid for it twice and that's a pretty fucked up narrative
1: because he finds out what's going on she's made unaware because of her memory is erased her memory of him her memory of damien and this damien character is fascinating to me because in essence he is the proof of the need for these papels he was not this This man, Damien, who is very into bats, and he wants to travel to India to see these rare bats, he gets these fake letters of transit from Maria, goes over there, and then fucking dies because he has this rare blood disease, which made him unfit for travel. And basically, she has allowed him to go over there, live his dream, quote unquote, but also fucking die. And it's like, wow, okay, so really, there's actually a reason for this, which... I don't think we're supposed to root for this whole papel system, but man, oh man, it could have saved Damien's life.
0: Well, you spend an hour judging everything that's going on as, as a viewer. And this is so wrong. This is so fucked up. And then you have something like that happen, And that called to mind another film war. The last one of the classic era touch of evil, in which you spend the entire movie thinking, man, this captain Quinlan is a son of a bitch. You know, he's the Buford T justice of this border town. And then you find out at the end of the movie, Quinlan was right, you know, that the dude did blow up the car, you know? And that's, that's really quite the, the mind fuck that cinema can pull on you. And code 46 is full of it.
6: It's full of it. It's divided nicely into halves that really butt up against each other. I mean, Mike, you're talking about the dream that she has that she can know her fate and she has this, she can count on this dream coming and, and then of course the film is very much about whether or not pursue your dreams regardless of the consequences. And then the film ends with William, his his, his memory erased with his, his family, uh, you know, who he was, he was tempted to leave, uh, to be with Maria. And they're singing row, row, row your boat. <laughs> Life is but a dream. The end of the film. And, um, while she is you know overlaying shots of Maria out in the desert that she hates, dreaming about him and um, wondering, was it worth it? But, um, I like that the, the the film kind of leads up the two halves lead up to the two love scenes in the film. And the first one, he has an empathy virus. He's got this you know sort of artificial way to know her and have insights into her. and of course, we find out later. He would have extra empathy for her because because of, of the similarity to to his mother. But it's she who insists she knows him from the very beginning. Uh, she's like, I know you. We've met before. I haven't. And, and when she's doing the voiceover, she says, you know, I can't. What I can't imagine is that we've never met before. The second love scene, she's had her memory wiped and does not recognize him And now it's his turn to have known her from the first meeting. And the insights he has about her, uh, this time they were come by naturally from their previous conversations. And he helps her spiritual connection to him sort of reawaken. And though the first time is they're together, it's kind of tender and exciting. And it's a leap into the unknown. And the second one is sad. It's hard to watch and endure. And the result... We know is going to be bad, you know. And the first one's an accident. The second one is a crime, and they're both choosing it on sort of separate terms both times. And it's really something I've, I spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about this week. How, um, how do we? I, I don't. I'm not even sure how I feel about about either one of them um, uh, at the end of the film. You know, do they? Was it a good gamble? Was it not? Was the memory? Is the memory? of it more precious than the stability of, of life inside or I'm not sure. I'm not sure who ends up better off and things like
0: that. Well, you know, it blew my mind last night after I watched it a fourth time and went to bed, I put on the subtitles and read every line. He never tells her anywhere in the film that she is a clone of his mother. She is unaware. And that whole sex scene is really complicated on so many levels. And there's a narrative level. Uh, what sense does it make in the film? Incest, rape, consensual rape, if there's no such thing. Is there an actual consent going on? You watch her grab the belt. It's her choice to go grab the belt. She knows what she's doing. And there's this internal level that's not Samantha Morton. This is a body double that we're seeing, The specifically the genitalia, which when I saw that in the theater, I couldn't believe I was... Completely blown away, and you can tell that it's a body double because they they cut away. And this is strange because the rest of Winterbottom's films are so honestly graphic, and so this might be kind of disingenuous to shoot it this way. But of course, you would need Morton's permission. She, and if I were her, I wouldn't grant this type of shot. And then there's this external level of what's going on production-wise. And I've read some of the reviews of Code Forty Six when it came out. The ones that mention the explicitness don't treat the movie very well. And and I don't understand why. It's like a vagina guaranteed a bad review. And there's a lot of people that I've talked to personally have seen it, and I've read reviews on Litterbox that say, well, this was unnecessary. And, well, I'm going to side with the director on that. Winterbottom says, quote, why can't you make a film showing two people make love? If you're going to make a love story, then why must you avoid the sexual side? And when you pay attention to contemporary fiction, I think that Winterbottom has a point. No one pulls any punches in fiction. It's as graphic as it can be. I've written stuff in my novels that reads like class A pornography on the bat of one eye, and you can buy modern pornographic fiction on Amazon, but you can't buy pornographic DVDs on Amazon. That's verboten. And why? You should be able to equate the two. But audiences and rating systems obviously don't allow that. And Winterbottom made a rather horrible film that we mentioned before, Nine Songs, that actually showed erections and penetration. The British Board of Censors cleared it because they said you have to look at intent, right? And what is the intent of the filmmaker? Was the intent to arouse the viewer? That film had real cunnilingus, mind you, and real penetration that you showed. But believe it or not, arousal was not the point of the film. It was to tell a love story between two people. Not a good story, but that's just like saying there's no good porn. If we're going to argue this point, then there's no difference between Code 46 or nine songs, right? Or the cooler in which Maria Bello showed her vagina or in the realm of the census or showgirls, Mike, which you did an excellent episode on. And you addressed this entire topic of nudity. The only difference is who says it's obscene. And not and in America, the law says the film must lack serious literary, artistic or political scientific value or be. Here's the famous phrase patently offensive. So on, on that rating system, nine songs gets an NC-17 and code 46 barely gets an R with a warning of brief graphic nudity. Right. So it just it makes that scene really complicated. Like on Jedediah was saying on this meta level, which I'd never even thought of. And then on a practical level of, of what the characters are doing in the story, and then on an external level of, of the production and how they're actually going to shoot something like that.
6: I like the line where uh, he shows up at her apartment after failing to get out of the country. He comes back to her. He needs her to forge for him. And he buzzes her her, uh, her apartment and she she answers. He says, can I come in? And she says, can I stop you? Like thematically, it's all it's really all leading up to that that scene in ways that I just I guess I think the screenplay is maybe better or more thought out or more like the more textured and layered than than uh, even the screenwriter seemed to give it credit for. I I thought it was it was something that that line really stuck out to me.
1: I had a false memory about this movie, which I guess is pretty appropriate For some reason, after the first time I saw it, she gets her memory wiped. He ends up going, having this kind of not consensual-ish, but kind of consensual-ish sex with her. I kept thinking that, all right, maybe he gets his mind wiped and then he goes back and still ends up seeing her. Or maybe she keeps getting her mind wiped. Because after she gets her mind wiped and they have this sex scene, the next morning she gets up. I guess at this point, she's now been programmed by having that first abortion that she immediately goes downstairs after she wakes up and reports a code 46 violation. She does it almost like she's in a hypnotic trance. And it is just, you know, she says as much like now is the time that I have to do this. And she just gets up and does it. And then they make their escape and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, I kept thinking that he just keeps doing this to her. Like he does it twice. <laughs> and I thought that this was just like thing. Like this was going to be something. And maybe those countdown of the stops on the train were like, this has happened to her 18 times. I just kept thinking like he has done this to her so many times. And that this, this is how he gets his kicks. Like I was reminded a little bit of like memento where it's like, okay, you, you found Sammy Jampkiss but now you're just going to like go after the next person. Like your vengeance has been met, but now it's time to concentrate on somebody else. And it's just this weird obsession type of thing that he has with this woman. And just that he just keeps literally fucking her over.
6: I also had a false memory about the movie where I thought that she was pregnant again at the end of it. Like I thought that I remembered the scenes of her in the desert at the end with a, with Well, with a big belly or with a baby or a small child
0: with her, but that's not, not the way it happened this time. Well, the ending's a little bit more messed up for me, and I guess I didn't really catch on to, to this probably until last week. Karina Longworth on the Must Rem- Remember This podcast covered Fatal Attraction and a couple of other films, and she mentioned that final shot in Fatal Attraction where... Michael Douglas and I don't remember who played the wife and Archer. Yeah. They go out, they walk out of the bathroom holding each other. And then the camera pans over to this photo framed photo of the family. And I couldn't help when I watched it last night that it's the same thing. It's, it's gelled with his wife rolling around in the bed, acting as if nothing happened, nothing goes on. And she's stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And the family is, is the priority the family is is what the purity control is for is the preservation of of the race and that's why we have these these laws race in terms of the human race as a total not as uh, an ethnic uh, diverse issue you know it's it's almost human supremacy was is the goal that was really hard to accept when i saw it last night because she says in the voiceover
3: you went before a tribunal they decided the empathy virus had affected your judgment So they took away your memory of me, just like they had wiped my memory of you.
1: That's what she's saying. And I like that she knows that somehow, even though she is no longer really a part of his story, but yet she is still narrating from afar. But what we see in the movie doesn't have anything to do with the tribunal. It's basically him waking up in the hospital after he's had this car crash with her in the desert, waking up. With the wife there, and then them leaving the hospital, we don't see the tribunal. It just feels like he has had the memory of Maria erased, so he just gets off scot-free, and there is no... I mean, he does get off scot-free, but there's nothing, like no tribunal no no nothing it just feels like okay you know off you go back to your wife back to your happy life you guys can make love and just have this wonderful time rolling around like kids and in bed but no he's there yeah like you said he's inside and she is as far outside as you can possibly get and i love that this whole thing of the screen going to black and her voiceover giving the last line of i miss you She still misses this guy. And does she know, like you said, why there was a code 46 violation? No, she is completely probably clueless. They have erased that part. All she knows is that she cares for this person.
0: It might be coming from the idea of because they're so genetically similar that there is this love bond and this love bond is enhanced by the empathy virus. And that's why she's still pining for him. And she doesn't understand why she thinks it's natural. He understands it's not natural. And that might be why the tribunal let him off because the tribunal sees, well, he ran into somebody who, who the empathy virus is not prepared to protect him against. Right. And that, that could be a valid reason and it could have been cut for budget reasons, but it's not, it's not in the screenplay, the tribunal and it's not in the deleted scene. So I assume that it was never written and it's never shot. Right. But it would have been an interesting procedural to see him go through this and why they made these decisions the other thing that really confused me i on the second or third viewing is they they tell his wife he doesn't we've wiped his memory he doesn't remember anything well why would they tell his wife that unless his wife knows that he violated code 46 and in the very next scene we have him rolling around with her on the bed which by the way imdb lists her as kristen scott thomas unbilled that doesn't look like Kristen Space. No. Gotcha. no. <laughs> this, is, this is the danger of relying on IMDb. It looks like a Spanish actress who's been in many other things, who is also on the list on IMDb, but it's not listed as Mrs. Geld, it's listed as just Sylvia. Anyway, that popped out at me.
6: Because of the history of, of this kind of literature and film, you know, we, we automatically don't like the bureaucrat who's part of the big system and, and represents its values and its its logic and, and things like that. We're we're always for the outsider and the individual in these kinds of stories. But we're all we're disarmed by him so quickly because of the way he treats the man at the checkpoint and because he lets Maria off. We see that there's this very human side of him that that we respond to and we and of course at the end of the movie he's let off for his crimes because he had empathy (laughs) for people. It reminds me of the Rossellini film um, Europe 51, where uh, Ingrid Bergman loses her child at the beginning of the movie. She's this sort of vapid uh, society person who loses a child and suddenly has empathy for the plight of people around her. And she starts giving away money and of trying to help people and she goes to she just keeps helping people and her society friends eventually have her committed you know because you've got so much empathy for people. It's you know, you must be mentally ill. This reminded me of, of the Rossellini film for that for that reasons. Like, well, you're not responsible for your actions because you were you were kind of high on empathy.
1: My day job, you know, I'm a user experience person. So my day job is like being empathetic with people and trying to get into their shoes and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, a lot of times it's like you're so emotional about these things. Like, yeah, yeah, that's my whole thing. I'm supposed to be very empathetic. Like, that's why you pay me is to be empathetic with people. No wonder I'm always very emotional at work. And I'm the one that's very like, oh, you have to take care of the people. You know, if you have happy employees, you're going to have a better business because, you know, you really need to care about people. And it's like, oh, you're talking crazy. So, yeah, maybe I'll be locked up one of these days. At the same time, there seems to be Winterbottom seems to be using a lot of
0: distanciation in this film almost to take empathy away from the audience where that seems to be at odds at what the empathy is trying to do in the movie. I mean, the voiceover to me, it's not as bad as Harrison Ford and the theatrical release of Blade Runner, but I, I wasn't blown away by the voiceover. There's a lot of unfocused shots. There's jump cuts that I don't particularly understand where things are going. There are some chronological things going on. There's a moment in which Maria opens her eyes and Geld is in the pupil and then she blinks and he's gone. And, that really threw me for a loop. Uh, so there's some unexplained images. The consensual rape, of course, that's distanciation to the the max. And then the dream of the subway train going left to right and right to left on on the screen. I wasn't sure what, but I think that Winterbottom was doing that deliberately, you know, to keep us at a distance, maybe like Kubrick was doing for all those movies of trying to get us to judge dispassionately of what was going on. You know, who is the real criminal in this relationship? I'm not convinced it's her.
1: Well, there's a moment, I think it's before they have sex the first time, where they're just talking, but then there's a shot of, I believe it's her taking off her shoes. And then it's later on that you actually see where that would maybe fit in. I mean, it's very disjointed on purpose. And I really, I like that. I was just like, oh, okay, this is kind of neat. We're kind of all over the place as far as timeline and really keeping us disoriented throughout so much of this
0: oh it just reminded me of out of sight by Soderbergh. i really love the editing in out of sight it
6: takes the tension out of the you know the sort of erotic tension out by letting you know oh we're getting there and you realize that the characters know we're getting there there's not a build-up to a kiss that suddenly becomes uncontrollable passion or something like that it's nope we're getting there we're gonna enjoy this whole process though we're gonna enjoy it so much i'm gonna get up and pee (laughs) and uh we're gonna you know sing terribly together but you know of course it was played a little differently in out of sight it was we're gonna get there we're gonna enjoy how sexy each other are Uh, but another Soderbergh parallel jumps to mind too and it's from this year's uh kimmy where the her job mike you were talking about your job being user experience and her job and and, and that film is is teaching ai empathy her job is to correct the ai's misunderstanding of what people mean when when they talk to it. and she's saying no when someone says this this is what it means or in this situation the meaning here changes and and of course her not to spoil that movie, too, but her, her empathy, her understanding of listening to a recording of what's going on, what's actually going on in this is what gets her in trouble and sets the whole thing off. But
1: uh, um. we keep bringing up Blade Runner. One of the most important things to Rachel and Blade Runner, well, to all the replicants is their memories, their false memories. And in this one, there's this whole thing about how she's had a finger replaced. And when she goes and gets the abortion or is taken to get the abortion, they use a cover of, we put on a new finger. We grew you and replaced you a finger because you had an accident. That was the cover story. She uses a finger, and I think it's the same finger. I think it's like third finger of the left hand. She uses that finger in a book, and she seems to transfer her memories from her head to this book with that finger. At least that's what I'm getting, is after that she meets Damien at that bar, which has a great... Cameo by Mick Jones, by the way, we haven't mentioned that. But after that, she puts her finger on this book and then we see the images over on the right hand side of it. And then she shows the book to Tim Robbins later on to say, like, this is me. She shows her parents in this book and we get to see her memories of these people. Even after... She gets a memory wipe. She still has this book and still has Tim Robbins in the book. And that's how she's like, oh, we've met before, haven't we? So it's very interesting that the memories become so important to her, not being a replicant, but just being such a a way to hold on to the past, even when she's getting her memories wiped. And not a very good criminal. They really probably should have searched her apartment and taken that book.
0: Well, in the finger, I was trying to figure out what was going on with the finger. And the finger was cut off in her youth. They regrew it. And then they basically copied that memory so that it happened again. So it could cover up the idea that she had a pregnancy with someone in a code 46 violation. So I was trying to link those two. And at the same time, there's this other thing going on, which is, as everybody knows, to geld is to castrate. And it's used a lot. I've, I grew up part time on a ranch when I was younger. And I was very familiar with gelding, probably way too much. And so I was trying to relate the gelding, but she's the one who's been gelded. She's the one who's been castrated, so to speak, with her memory. There's just so much of the stuff that's going on in both of them that's really confusing.
1: And I think it's meant to be. And that the finger then ties into the whole thing, too, where she then goes in to log into work, and she's like, oh, I I got a new finger, I need to be recoded. So it's like the finger is also your identity, it's your passage into things. When she's at the airport later on, she tries to use her finger, and she's like, oh, I've got this new finger. And it's like, being a Star Wars fan, it's like, how many times are we going to castrate somebody by cutting off a hand or an arm? I mean, that happens in so many movies, whether it's C-3PO or... You know, Luke Skywalker himself, there's always arms being chopped off. Alright guys, we're going to take a little bit of a break here and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from producer Andrew Eaton, and after that we'll hear from writer Frank Cottrell-Boyce, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages.
3: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well... AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
1: I really am very curious how you got your start in the business. I mean, you've had such a long and illustrious career.
2: Well, I started Red Law at university, which I hated. And then when I left, I went to London. I worked in the theater uh, doing administration and publicity and press and stuff like that. I always wanted to be in films, and I, it was really hard to find a way in in those days. It was the business really wasn't didn't amount to much in terms of films, but Goldcrest was going at the time. I, I had a part time job as a reader for Goldcrest. Around right about the time when they were just going out of business, which was unfortunate. And then, and then I managed to get a job at the BBC as a researcher and a three-month contract, and I stayed there for nine years. That was my apprenticeship. While I was there, I, I became friends with Michael Winterbottom, and um, I managed to get into the drama department, which was always a really hard thing to do. And I produced one thing that Michael directed, and then we, they, we started our own company.
1: Well, yeah, you guys have been working together for all these years. When was that first time that you worked with him?
2: The first time we worked together was 1994. We did a drama serial for the BBC that the Irish novelist Roddy Doyle wrote called Family.
1: Right before that, you did one called A for ABBA. Can you tell me about that?
2: Well, yeah, I was a documentary maker. And uh, it was the last job, the last documentary I did. was It was an anniversary, I think, of them winning Euros and Song Contest. And uh, I'm a huge ABBA fan, and we had so much fun. Because we basically just went around and interviewed all the people that I love, like Ray Davis from The Kinks and Elvis Costello and all kinds of people, and asked them about their favorite of songs. And then we just sat in the cutting room for weeks singing at the top of our voices. John Peel, the um, the DJ who sadly died a few years ago, he was the presenter. It was great fun. Tell me about that
1: relationship with Michael Winterbottom and then Revolution Films.
2: We were both contemporary and we, we both loved films. And it was Michael's idea to start a company because we figured... If At least if we control stuff during the development process, we might end up making more stuff that we liked. We did a one a film for the BBC called Go Now that was made for television, but actually got released theatrically in some territories. And then we made Jude. It was commissioned by the BBC based on Jude the Obscure, but probably we were very, very fortunate. That we happened to coincide with Polygram becoming a real force in cinema, which they hadn't done before. So they came in on that picture and then they signed a three-year deal with us so when you look back and we were too young and stupid to realize how fortunate we were at the time
1: I really remember when Jude came out that seemed to cause quite a splash and it was so nice seeing Christopher Eccleston in that yeah he's terrific
2: in that film and also a very very young Kate Winslet Kate had her 21st birthday when she was with us on that one she she actually lives about three miles away from me now so I see her her occasionally and it's, it's funny to think the last time I saw her she was with her Eldest daughter, who's now the same age that uh, that she was when we made that film. I think at the time we were we were still we were just making it up as we went along, but we were so excited to be in the business. I mean, we nothing there were no no family connections with the business at all, so it was really a, a real passion for both of us. Again, it's you only realize these things when you look back, but um, I think our naivety kind of helped us in a way because. We started this company together because we thought it made sense, and we were completely equal as a producer-director partnership. So I think that, that enabled enabled us to make quick decisions about things that we really loved and stuff we wanted to do because that was that was really what drove it. You know, we were just thinking about what what we would think what would be the most fun. Wouldn't it be great to make a music film? Wouldn't it be great to make a western? Wouldn't it be great to make a a film in 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 the middle of Soho in London? And 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 we're fortunate, we we're very lucky, we got to do all those things. But we, we we're also quite determined to be. To not follow the rules, I guess. You know, the business is. I mean, film business is an incredibly conservative business with a small C. And um, when you when you try to do things differently, people don't realize, don't like it very much.
1: What kind of obstacles were you pushing against?
2: Well, we did a film. I rem- remember in uh, Canada called the Claim. In those days, I don't think it's the same now, but it was very it was very unionized in. In um, Canada, and, I, and I'm a big fan of unions and everything they represent, but when it starts to curtail the whole process and how you want to do things, and you end up having spending money on things you don't think you need, and you know the, the sparks would take every single light off the truck, just use up some more overtime, and then they put it all back again and all that stuff. And we, we both came from a documentary background where we wanted to be able to change everything that we did whenever we wanted to. And that's why we made a film like Wonderland, because the whole idea of, about that was to shoot on the streets of London and in order to do that, you couldn't have any circus. So we had no trucks and no backup and no dressing rooms. And, and we cut it back to a bare minimum because we thought it would be more fun. Some people go, hey, this is great. And other people go, I don't want to work like this. And so you quickly find out who, the, who are the more fun people to work with. And Code 46 had a lot of elements of that in, in it as well.
1: But yeah, Code 46. I mean, you can't get farther from the streets of London than shooting in all the locations that you did for that one.
2: Yeah, that the inspiration for that came out. We we made a film called In This World, a couple of years before, which involved traveling a lot around in Pakistan and and Iran, and making a journey back to London, and and just at that time encountering all those different cultures and backgrounds and languages we had we'd had an idea for quite a long time to make a sort of sci-fi type of movie futuristic movie and we knew we'd never get the budget to do it on a kind of ridley scott scale so we we figured a better way to spend the money was to go to places that looked extraordinary and try and use those backdrops to create a story and as often happens we we knew we had the idea but we couldn't find the story to pin it on and then we came up with this idea which is quite a quiet an oedipal idea in a way of a a couple who are related biologically but don't know it and fall in love and um it was quite a simple story at his heart.
1: How was it working with uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce?
2: Frank and Michael were at university together, so they'd known each other for quite a while. And we had a, quite a long collaboration. I mean, they had done one film, Butterfly Kiss, before I worked with Michael. And then he, he wrote the claim script, and he wrote 24-hour party people, and then he went on and wrote Code, code 46. And the, the fun thing about working with Frank is that he, he would be in on, the, in on the basement of all these ideas saying, wouldn't it be great to do this? And then we would fire a lot of stuff back and forth between our, each other saying, well, what about this story? And What about this story? And trying to find a way to, find, to settle on something that worked for us. Frank would always do this thing where he would go away and write about 30 pages. And then it would take you about a year to get him to write the remaining 65 that you needed. But yeah, we usually got there in the end.
1: How many projects do you have going at the same time?
2: Well, in those days, it used to be more. I mean, we, we, we used to try and aim for a slate of about 10 projects, and then it got bigger. And then recently, I, I found myself personally cutting back to around about three or four, because, you know, it's a weird thing. When you first start out, you only have one thing, and all your passion goes into you. You say, we're going to make this film no matter what. And then we we had the situation with the film The Claim where we were going to do it with Polygram, and at the very last minute, it fell through. And We'd already re- we'd built the sets and everything, and it was all greenlit, and then... And that was a really harsh lesson to realize because we had nothing in our back pocket to go, well, why don't we do this? So after that, we made it, we tried to keep, you know, a few spinning plates because something that was a bad idea last year might be a good idea next year and things change. And finally, as I get older now, I'm moving back to more to when I started, just to try and get a couple of things that you really feel passionate about, you know, rather than play the business game, I think it's just to follow your, your instincts.
1: How was it working in China in 2002 when you shot this?
2: It was pretty cool, actually, because it was obviously in the days when it was in an even more totalitarian state than it is now. And Shanghai was just beginning to break out. It was right on the cusp, you know, where you had all this incredible architecture and new building happening and a lot of Western influence. And you had these amazing restaurants and nightclubs, but you'd walk out of the hotel and on the corner, there'd be a guy strangling, strangling a chicken or welding a bicycle or sometimes doing both at the same time. It was great to be in that environment because it was... I remember Tim Robbins got a bit scared about it because we were doing some driving along the streets. And obviously, you couldn't control things in the way you would in a in a more Western First World country, I guess, in a way. So it was a bit more hairy. But we, we kind of loved that. There's an amazing checkpoint on the road to the airport, and we used that. And it's a, it's a really big checkpoint, and they were they still haven't finished building it. And they let us shoot there. And then just before we started filming, this police guy came to me and said, we're, "We have to have these cones here for security." And I said, we, "We can't have them there because we can't have them when shot." And they said, "Well, take away the cones if you promise to pay us a million dollars if anybody gets hurt." And I got someone just wrote out in you know in Mandarin on a piece of paper that, and I just signed it, and we gave it back to them, and like saying to Michael, "For God's sake, don't don't hurt anybody." So it was a bit, it was a little bit rock and roll, but we did have the help of the the film studios there. And you know, obviously they they have an incredible film history. So they they know they know about film. And and we were shooting on 35 mils. So they never they, they, they were able to help us with quite a lot of stuff.
1: Well, it's just amazing because I love how you're breaking down barriers of geography with all of these different locations, you know, stuff in Dubai, stuff in India, of course in England. And then also breaking down language i mean that idea of language changing and moving together just like how there's no barrier between these countries even though the whole film is really about barriers this inside outside dichotomy
2: yeah well i think one of the things we learned from doing the film in this world is we had the situation where we'd cast these two young afghani kids in pakistan but we couldn't take them up they didn't exist in terms of nationality because they were afghan refugees so they didn't have afghan passports we got them Pakistan passports, but then we couldn't get a visa for them to go to the UK. The UK wouldn't give them a visa unless Pakistan gave them a visa, and there was this Mexican standoff. And it was just interesting to see how quickly, even in that was 2003 or 2002 when we started filming, you could become a, a you know a lost person in the world, even in those days. And I'm sure it's a lot worse now for refugees. And so we tried to take that idea of, of you know projecting to the future what that would be like if you couldn't go anywhere without the necessary ID and approval, and also this idea of you know genetic engineering, which, again, has moved on a lot since those days. It just was kind of fun to play with them. It was a really essentially quite simple love story, but against the backdrop of, of Big Brother. and, and um, I mean, I don't think the script was ever even really as nailed down as we would have liked to have been before we started filming. I think there was also that sense that part of the interest comes out of the journey, you know, in the places that you go to. And, and especially when you, when you don't control an entire filming environment, you're much more likely to hit up against something that you don't expect. Because we did the kind of fun bit first where we went we started in China and worked our way back. So we started in, in Shanghai, came back then to Dubai, and then to India and then back to the UK. And we did a lot of stuff in the UK at the end which, which was quite tedious and boring because I think it was like a I think it was like late February March time. so the weather wasn't very nice and that, and we walked we went from these slightly chaotic crazy situations and all these other countries back into a much more traditional controlled environment in, in the UK. And quite a bit of studio stuff and quite a few of the sex scenes, which were really frustrating to shoot. So, so I think the early part was the, was, the, was the fun bit of embracing those. And also, we only had like, there were 15 of us, I think, as a kind of core crew who went to each of the countries. Then we picked up people in those places. And, I, and again, that just that bonded us all really closely. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it.
1: The cast is just amazing. I mean, I just rewatched it again the other day, and I forgot that Benedict Wong is in there as a small role. Yeah, Benedict <laughs>
2: Also, Benny, there's a, there's a very nice story about that because, you know, he does this strange voice accented accent with a speech impediment all of a sudden he was offset and he was doing some vocal warm up exercises that involved speaking like that. And Michael heard him on the on the headphones and he said, I want you to do the character in that voice. So Benny ended up uh, getting stuck with it.
1: You have Tim Robbins and Samantha Morton through so much of the film. What was it like working with them?
2: To be honest, but they didn't get on very well, which was tricky when you're doing a love story. And it wasn't so much that they didn't like each other; they just had a different way of. They like to work in different ways. You know, um, Michael likes to do lots of different takes and 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 look for something completely different every time. And and Sam really liked that, and Tim hated that. So Tim wanted every take to be he could do the same thing every time. So I go over here, I pick up this towel. I do that. And that that was always a bit of, um, created a bit of friction between the two of them. I think Tim was a little bit freaked out by, I remember he he took us out for dinner one night and said, I work with some guerrilla filmmakers in my time, but you guys really take the biscuit. We thought that was a great compliment, but he didn't mean it as a compliment. But I think that that freaked him out. And and, and the, the, the thing that took a bit of the joy out of it was when we got, when we did get back to the UK and we had to do the most intimate scenes because they didn't get on, it made that really tricky. But as people, like they're fantastic people. It was tough for them because we were putting them in in quite difficult situations. So certainly for someone like Tim, well, he didn't he didn't had a personal bodyguard with him, so he had some protection. But I remember a couple of times, Tim would be out at, out with us in some nightclub at three o'clock in the morning in Shanghai, and the bodyguard was back home and asleep in the hotel. So that was quite funny. How did Mick
1: Jones get that cameo?
2: Uh, That's like a good story. We we were having a, the wrap party in India when we finished shooting there. And we knew we, we were going to be filming again in London three days later. And there was always a scene in the script where Sam's character goes into a, a, a nightclub to meet the guy. who has got the pass, the forged pass for her. And I said to Michael, we, I'm sure we were several bottles of wine in. And I said, wouldn't it be great to get Mick Jones to sing? Should I stay or should I go? Because lyrically, it's perfect for the film. And, and I had become friends with him because... I produced a film called Bright Young Things, and his then wife was one of the producers on it. There was this Christmas party we had at Revolution Films one year, and she said to me, "Do you mind if I bring my my fiance?" And I said, "That's fine." And he turned up, and, and she said, "This is Mick," and it was Mick Jones, and I nearly fainted because he's one of my heroes. So we kind of we became friends after that, and I remember I I, I rang, I'm going to forget her name, it was Amanda. I rang her up and said, and it was like three o'clock in the morning in the UK. Said, so, you know, we've got this great idea. Would get Mick to sing, should I say go? And she said, yeah, fantastic. I'm sure he'll do it. And I think we paid him like a hundred pounds and he came and we recorded a backing track and, and we sat him on the stool and we said, okay, Mick, you can just sing it live the first time and then you can just mime to the other takes. And he said, there's no way I'm going to mime. He's proper old school. Between every take, Tim Robbins was bringing him a vodka martini. <laughs> so by the, time, by the time of take five, Mick could barely sit on the stool. And I remember taking him across the road to the Covent Garden Hotel where we had a, a dressing room for him. And he was pretty much, I was half carrying him. and got him down to the basement. He got changed into his great clash white suit. And, it was, and he smoked a joint. And it was like that. He was completely back in the room, completely compass menders. And I, and I always thought, you know, I wish I could attain to that rock and roll plateau that, that he inhabits. It was great. It was great fun. One thing we didn't talk about at all, which I really thought was an important part of him, was David Holmes' score. David did his first ever score for me for Resurrection Man, and I'd said to Michael uh, he'd be great because originally it was going to be Dario Marinelli, who we worked with on In This World, and, and then David came in and actually sent us some some cigarette stuff to start with. And the, the thing that was great about doing that score is that we did it recorded most of it in London, and David's a bit like. Uh, hans zimmer except hans zimmer can play david can not play but david david gets session brilliant session people into a room and says i want it to sound like this and i think some of the guitar playing and vocals on, on this soundtrack, is stuff I, I of all the soundtracks we've done is the one i go back and listen to the most
1: obviously you yeah, michael's doing the directing which is no small feat but it feels like on a film like this you are really earning your stripes as a producer because it feels like there's so many moving parts
2: yeah there was a lot when I mean, we had a big bump in the road about a month before we started filming, where we lost the biggest chunk of finance. Pathé were originally going to be funding it. And uh, I won't go into all the details, but uh, in those days, traditionally a lot, especially with American lawyers, but most lawyers, when you send emails, you keep the whole chain. And I and we were trying to get the deal closed, and it was getting really, and Michael and I were cash flying it ourselves at that point. And it was getting really, I was really, I was saying to my wife, if we don't make this film, we might we might have to sell the house. And it got really bad. And then I said something rude about one of the lawyers involved. And then, then they just pulled out of the whole deal. It was it was I have to say, when I look back now, I'm older and wiser, but it was really bad. I remember we the day it happened, it was the British Independent Film Awards, and we won an award for 24-hour party. People, and I went on stage and got it. And when I walked backstage, I just I I just collapsed and burst into tears. And the and the people who presented the award thought I was doing that because of the emotionally winning award it was because we just lost like four million dollars anyway it all got fixed in it, sort of but, but for the first two weeks of filming in shanghai it was being cash flowed by myself and johnny duncan the production accountant, going to a cash machine every morning and just getting out as many as much money as we could
1: you talked about guerrilla filmmaking
2: yeah yeah in a way again i'm pretty sure i got pneumonia at one point and i ended up in a hospital in in shanghai but and it was all fine in the end but it was tough it was really tough but, but in, in the end, when you do those things, you know, you go on those journeys. Not only are you getting a life experience you'll never forget, but those are just great people. You know, the 15 people we made that with were just fantastic. And they're still people who are some of my closest friends. And, they, you know, we, we all have, I got loads of photographs of that. When we, when we finished the rap party in India, there was a guy with the longest moustache in the world who was part of the crew. <laughs> we have these, all these photographs of everybody standing with this gigantic moustache. How was the film received when it came out? We had a bad screening. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival, which we were already excited about. But we we just finished cutting it, and we were so we were screening Double Heads. So we had a in one of the old theaters on, on the Lido. We had we had the rehearsal the night before, and it went on all night because we couldn't get it in sync. We couldn't get the sound right because they had, the, they had the picture here, and then they had the sound in another part of the cinema. And anyway, we finally cracked it, and and it came. and The screening was going incredibly well. And we were about 40 minutes into the film and the mag broke and suddenly the film just stopped. And I, I ran up to the production booth, I was banging on the door and it was really annoying because they, what they'd done is, you know, it was, you know, there's really old horizontal mag machines and you put a bar across to, to make sure it doesn't come off the spool and they hadn't put the bar across and the middle fell out. So they put it on a winder and then while they, when they put it on the winder, they managed to break the mag completely. It was one of those things to be for 40 minutes, you thought this is going to be a great success and then... Unfortunately, those festival screenings tend to determine a lot of the future of the film. So it wasn't the most auspicious start.
1: One of your subsequent films was Tristram Shandy. And I know Mr. Boyce worked on that, but he used a pseudonym.
2: We fell like out with Frank on that because um, he started writing it and then he didn't want to finish it. And then he just didn't want to be involved with it anymore. He, he felt Frank's idea for that at one point was that he wanted it to be like an eight-part television series. And we made it into the film. And I just think it was to do with where we all were in our headspace at the time, we never really made it up. To be honest, it's just one of those fallings out that happens in business sometimes, between especially right. between friends. I like the fact that there's a lot of stuff in Tristram Shandy that is are literally lines that have been either been said to us by people in the business or experiences that that we've had. Uh, so it's always my kid's favorite film because they I think they feel like they've lived it.
1: You worked again with Steve Coogan in that one. I mean, I love what he did in Twenty Four Hour Party People. I love what he was doing in that one. So good.
2: Yeah, I think I there's think a really interesting thing. I think he and Michael work together really well. I remember I had met Steve before, and I remember introducing the two of them for the first time. And they're both from the northwest of England, and they they both uh, take their what they do really, really seriously. You know, they're really passionate about it, but they're also both incredibly funny. And it's, for some reason, when they work together, it just seems to gel because there's no bullshit at all. There's no they're, they're two of the least pretentious people I've ever known, and I think that really helps to 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 make the work good. And also, you get a real bonus of the you know the amount of laughs you can have. Sometimes, some of the stuff that's happening off camera is as funny as the stuff that's happening on camera. I'm trying to remember the
1: name of the other gentleman that he makes those travel movies with. When they had their whole Michael Kane off, that was probably one of the best things I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, Rob Brydon. Thank you. Yeah. We, when we did that that show, we would go uh, and we would often have a dinner the night before, and then they would do the material the next day. And some of the stuff with the dinners, it was just a real joy. You know, sometimes you do a job like that where it feels like it's not really work. And a lot of the best stuff came up. There's a, there's a scene in the, in the first series where we go to an old ruined cathedral. Uh, called Bolton Abbey. And um, we—they all, everyone had a really bad hangover and it snowed in the morning. So the sun the truck was late and everything was running behind. And we didn't really know what we were doing. It was a really beautiful setting, a beautiful sunny morning. And they were just walking along. And Rob said to Steve, what would you say, you know, if you had to speak at my funeral? And you could see Steve's eyes just lit up. <laughs> he went off. It was incredibly funny completely improvised monologue and i remember it so well because this guy the boom op, was laughing so much i had to go and stand behind him and help to hold his arms up because there was just no way he could keep going and at the end because steve knew it was golden at the very end of it he just ran and ran randomly jumped over a fence which he thought it had like a small and it had like a 10 foot drop on the other side and we just heard this giant cry it was just it was full of um joyous things like that
1: I know you started more in television. How was it, kind of moving back into television with things like? I know you worked on what The Crown and Doll and M and just yeah, yeah. so many amazing things that you've done.
2: When Michael and I started in in television, that we the first thing we did was this four part drama serial called Family, and and we had enough money left to cut it into a two hour version, which we then blew up from sixteen to thirty five. We took it to Toronto. So for me, when we, even when we started doing television, I I thought, and my clients certainly thought, we were just making films under the guise of television. And I felt the same way when I went back to it. It's like... I think with the crown and it did a series called red riding before that, there was three separate films that to me, we were always bringing what I felt was film sensibility to, to the smaller screen. And I, when we did the crown, I thought we were just, we were just making 10 films. And I, and I think that's, that's not a, it's, it's not to say that television or film is better than television. I just think it's to do with the mindset of what your aspiration is and what you're aiming for and whether you really care. I mean, the two things I love most about filmmaking is cinematography and music I think anybody who really loves—if—if you don't get that, then you shouldn't really be making films. And I—and I think sometimes, you know, when I started on the crown and I saw the first draft budget they'd done, they had like a standard rating for a, you know, probably B-list television cinematographer. And and I said, I've done films, you know, for a fraction of this budget and paid guys twice or sort of three times this amount of money you know why wouldn't you pay the money you know for, for that i mean obviously there is a difference in streamers that have definitely um, opened up the world a bit more but i, I just think it's a, more about a you know what your approach is to it and, and often that's not even budget-led it is just like what's your vision you mentioned red
1: riding which again fantastic is there a right way or a wrong way to watch that because i've noticed some people watch it by year and other people watch it by year backwards
2: I hope not, because the reason why we did it like that was because I read the books in the wrong order. So I think I think I read 1980 first because like someone gave it to me. And then I went and read the others. And it was a real fight with, even though they'll deny it. No, it was a real fight with Channel 4 here to make it in that way. Because everybody wants one director and, you, and the same crew and you go all the way through. And that's why I said, I thought it would be fun to do it with three different directors Almost competing with each other, but also trying to segue and you know having to inherit some cast and shooting on different formats, shooting and sometimes using an entirely different location for the same place. And I think that's what you can do when you read a book. you can jump ahead, you can jump around in your mind like that. So I, I don't really mind. there was one great day we had at the New York Film Festival. Where we showed them all three in a row. And we did a and I think, after the first one or something. And, and Terrence Stamp was in the audience. I was so if someone told me when I was eight years old, I would never screen a film and Terrence Stamp would be the audience, I would never have believed it. Yeah. So I think you can watch it, watch it whichever way you want. Only if it was it was shown here recently, I think on Sky or something or something, and I watched I didn't watch them all, but I thought it stood really stood the test of time. Tell me a little bit more about some of the stuff you've
1: got coming up. If memory serves, there's a new version of the Ipcris file. Is that a another TV series
2: yeah that's a TV series for um for ITV and it's going be yeah it's going to be on AMC I love that original film and and uh, it's quite hard to go into something that's so iconic with such an iconic performance and make it different but that starts showing on um, here in the UK this month later this month and it, but the script is written by John Hodge who's a terrific writer He did train spotting and lots of other great stuff and and James Watkins whose work you all know from things like McMafia he did. He's a really good, you know, really good director. So can't wait to see all that. Well, I do the film It's on Netflix at the moment called Munich: The Edge of War. Jeremy Irons. That's uh, I just was executive producing with fantastic director Gareth Evans on a film called Havoc, which is you know Gareth did the Raid films, and this is a big action movie for, again for Netflix starring Tom Hardy. So with that, we just wrapped that in October, at the end of last year. So that's a post at the moment. Um, I, think I would say that. So it's all ostensibly set in in Detroit or a similar American city, but it's all filmed in Cardiff and Swansea. So,
1: oh, okay. <laughs> <What a plan. laughs> well, here I am, right outside of Detroit, so it'll be interesting great, to see. Perfect. How, uh... you know,
2: you'll be able to judge better than anybody. Else. I'm trying to, There's a book called Night Night Boat to Tangier that I that I optioned with Michael Fassbender, which is I really really want to do this like an Irish gangster contemporary story. So yeah, I'm just trying to. I'd like to retire in in three years' time, Mike. So if I can if I can make that happen, that would be great. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for
1: your time. This was
2: great. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. I hope I didn't ramble on too much.
4: How did you even get into the screenwriting business? It's a long story and it's a kind of story that wouldn't happen anymore, but this is Liverpool and... Someone had just set up a soap opera here for the first time, and it was very easy to get on if you lived here because um, you wouldn't be charging expenses. <laughs> it was easy to get on, but it was hard to stay on. So I joined that, and after about a year, they wanted to do a kind of hookup. with a. It's, it's very hard to describe without describing the ecosystem of British hey. television in the day, but there was a, there were regional franchises, and there was a regional franchise that wanted to do a kind of one-off film, but involving the characters from this soap opera. And so I just volunteered to do that. And the editor of that was Michael Winterbottom. That's how we met. And he was just desperate to stop being an assistant editor. He was an assistant editor. He wasn't an editor. This is like way back. This is like steam deck days when the assistant editor's job was just to kind of wind things all day. Huge kind of Popeye forearm. We sort of joined forces and two is always stronger than one. So we pitched a lot. We pitched a lot of things, but... Finally, we got one made, and then we met, went on and made a few films together.
1: What was your guys' working relationship like? Because, yeah, you did work on quite a few things together, including Code 46.
4: It was really good fun. You know, he was very, you know, you still like this, isn't he? He's very restless. And his aesthetic is that whatever he's doing now, you would rather be doing something else. <laughs> so you're doing a big kind of epic Western up in the snow. You would suddenly want to do... Small kind of handheld type film in Manchester. And if you're doing that, he'd suddenly want to be doing a massive classical adaptation or whatever. He's very dialectical. There you go. That's a nice word. How did Code 46 come about? This is exactly what I was talking about. We were making a film called 24 Hour Party People, which was very close to home. We're both from the northwest of England. Michael is Blackburn, which is sort of greater Manchester. And I'm Liverpool, which is big rivalry with Manchester. But it was America? They produced one city that forty minutes apart. So it was very not autobiographical is the wrong word, but it was very much in a world that we both lived in. All, all I remember is that one night after shooting, going back to the flat that he was renting and having a little chat and saying, because this was that was such a messy film, it was very all over the place. It was it was really hard to. control. It was sort of telling a big long true story in a very short space of time with massive egos, and it was crazy. He said, it'd be really nice to do something sort of very clean and kind of allegorical, you know, that had a very simple premise and story. So I said, well, maybe it should be a sci-fi film in that case. You know, that'd be quite a good thing. And that was it, really. That was the, that was the full extent of the conversation. I remember he's making some kind of pasta thing with courgettes. That's all.
1: Were you a big sci-fi fan before you started to write this?
4: not a hardcore fan but i still read a lot of sci-fi i subscribe to a magazine called interzone which i read faithfully every month every month and have done since goodness knows when yeah lots of my favorite writers are sci-fi writers so
1: there's things in code 46 that i never would have thought of before but they're just such brilliant ideas the whole idea of the viruses i mean it
4: almost feels a little philip k dick almost you know, Philip K. Dick is an influence, but also it was that thing of like, there's a thing in 19th century gardening called Borrowed Landscape, where you build your house and you have a little front garden, but you, if you you have like a ha-ha or something like that. And so the rest of the landscape looks as though it's part of your, it's a sort of trick. So I was thinking, you know, I knew we wouldn't have any budgets. So I was sort of trying to think of ways to defamiliarize the world in that kind of, you know, in a sci-fi type way, but without sort of special effects and big builds. So, you know, Michael's response to that was, oh, we shoot it in Shanghai because no one knows what it looks like. And mine was to mess about with the kind of the biology of the characters and the the kind of world's outlook. So there's also the viruses thing. I don't know where that came from, but I'm really, really quite chuffed with it and kind of wish I'd done something else with it. You know, that idea that you learn a language or, a, or an empathy virus and stuff like that, you get infected by an ability. I, I like that idea. And obviously, it's become viruses have become very kind of prescient, haven't they? Or, you know, the, the emphasis on virus has become quite prescient. And then the other thing was the language thing, you know, that everyone would be speaking some kind of basic English, but it would be full of little greetings and things from all the other languages that English had predated on. <laughs> Again, that's sort of become true in a weird way, hasn't it? You know, like the place of English as the dominant language seems sort of durable. English does soak up words from other languages all the time. So there must be a point at which they're sort of in there as loan words. So I just like, I like doing that, you know. Nice to get a bit of Basque into a film as well. Isn't Basque in danger, or was in danger of kind of just dying out? I used to live in the Basque country and hardly anyone speaks any Basque. And for some reason, some insane reason, I learned a lot of Basque, which is, I really can't really say this, kind of, it's, not, it's not a transferable skill speaking Basque. <laughs>
1: I know with Millions, you wrote Millions and then you wrote basically a novelization of your own work and expanded upon it. The thing that impressed me the very first time I saw Code 46 is that it feels like it is of a much larger piece. I was convinced that you had adapted a book or a series of books because there's
4: so much of a rich story to it. I'll just take that as a compliment. I haven't got anything to say except thank you for that. Maybe I should have done the book. Yeah, I mean, I guess knowing that there wouldn't be a budget really kind of forced you to do the well-building in the script. You know, if you read a lot of Shakespeare, that's what he does, isn't it? He's, he's, he's constantly, you know that the stage is this big, so the effects are all in the language, you know.
1: Did you have a larger vision and then you just kind of took a slice of that? Or what? when you were writing, how do you come about with those things?
4: No, I think especially Code 46 was very performative. It was like, you know, I knew Michael wanted to make another film quickly. I just started writing. I don't remember doing any planning or anything. I remember writing a first draft that he really hated, but I can't remember why. And then he'd taken a much more clean take. I mean, I think the thing for him was like having that sort of crystal clear story, which I don't even know if we really got to that, but that kind of feel of a myth or a parable or an allegory, even if it isn't one, there was a lot of kind of emphasis on getting the story clear. But, I, you know, no. No, I definitely didn't do kind of a huge amount of planning or anything like that in one sense, and in another sense, at that point, we'd made several films together, shorthands between us, you know?
1: When you're coming up with your stories, are you more of like a note card kind of guy, as far as where things belong, or you're just here,
4: I've it, it all comes out? I'm very performative. It's like, let's do this, and kind of rely on the fact that I, I always have this, if I'm working with someone new, I'll always tell them that this first draft is going to be horrific to you. But if there's anything in it, you. But I don't have any ego, so don't be afraid. So, if like, just allowed to just go for it, and for the other person to be the responsible adult in the room. I think you know I have, I have a lot of responsibility in my real life, so you know I, I like to be uh, a hoodlum on the page. Are you the same way when it comes to writing your own books? I've had the same editor for all my books, and she's brutal, and she is also, you know, the vocabulary is just. That shit, that's good. That shit, that's good. <laughs> so we don't get technical about it. I like kind of outsourcing all that stuff to somebody else, really.
1: When you're on a film like Code 46, and I know it's got to be different for every film that you work on, is it one of those like, thank you for the script, stay in England, I'm going to go over here to Shanghai?
4: Or do you travel with production and actually help out while it's happening? That depends on the project, you know, where I am in with all my other responsibilities. So, for instance, for 24-hour party people, I did, I did a lot. I was there a lot. It wasn't just sort of writing responsibilities. There was a lot of, like, keeping people quiet and keeping people happy and, and you know, because it's about real people. So there was a lot of sort of being charming and being reassuring and swanning around and keeping people occupied and keeping people away from Michael. With Code 46, I think I went to the read-through. We did a load of notes after the read-through. And then they went off to Shanghai and I didn't go. I think we had just had a baby. So I was never going to go to Shanghai anyway. And then quite involved in the editing, you know. Yeah. And which is the bit that I like the best. i like, uh, you know, that's the bit that's most like writing, isn't
1: it? Usually I would think that not to sound crass, but like your job is done by that point. So what are you doing with the editing part of it?
4: Code 46, I actually can't remember. But like the film that I'm making at the moment, this is not a criticism, but. The person that we cast is hugely charismatic and attractive and perfect for the film. It carries a very different energy from the part as written. I've probably done as much writing, if you want to call it that, in the edit as I did in the script. You're kind of trying to rewire that character, you know, so that he's as sympathetic as the character in the script was, who's much, much more vulnerable character. So I think that happens a lot, you know, that you go out, you shoot stuff, you come back and it's not the blueprint, you know? If you've got a good relationship with the director, I think that's a that's great you know it's an opportunity to at least be a pair of fresh eyes for them. you know if they've gone backstop for you when you were throwing ideas out on the page, you should be able to go backstop for them when you're um, when they're editing i think you know be that fresh pair of eyes and say that feels long or I don't know why you've done that you know you know there's the material and you're trying to shape it. I think you've kind of gotta in a way you've kind of gotta forget the scripts it's like this is this is what we've got you know if you think of this the script as the studies and the sketches. Then someone's gone out into the field with their paints and painted the lights, you know? It's like you've got to come back and go, oof, that's a bit glary. Maybe we need a, a different kind of frame for this one, a different title. I love that though.
1: How many projects do you work on at a time?
4: I mean, film's so weird, isn't it? Because it just sort of suddenly ambushes you. You know, You're like I mean, it's different in America, I guess, but here the film industry is not at all an industry. And getting a film financed is such a house of cards so for instance the film that we shot last summer i think that's 10 years between getting it going and and they're not 10 years where you wrote it and then put it in a drawer for 10 years it's 10 years of like nearly all the time you know so i had like a lovely summer planned of sitting around writing my book and then suddenly we were shooting it you know and it was like really intense and and you kind of ambushed by it and i just happened to be writing another script at the same time so I don't know. I, there's no answer to how many at a time. It's just always frantic, you know? That's going to be something just to keep that stuff straight mentally. Yeah. Luckily, it was the same producer for both films, so that was good. But, I, you know, I think Code 46 and Millions were shot more or less simultaneously in my memory, or like one after another, you know? And they're two very, different, two very different directors and two very different ethoses, you know? Tell me a little bit more about the movies that you have coming out the one that took a long time is currently called The Beautiful Game and it's based on real thing which is called which is the Homeless World Cup so there's a soccer competition I said soccer out of politeness to you if any of my kids heard me call football soccer they would just never speak to me again there's a, a soccer competition for homeless people and it's international So and different countries manage that different ways so for instance in Mexico it's very very well funded and there's a whole league of street soccer for homeless people in other countries, you'll find six people have got together to enter the competition, you know. But it's a real thing. And this originally was about the Irish team going there, but we in the end couldn't cast that. So no, it's about the English team. And it's it's just like a celebration of it's just a film about some homeless guys who go to a football competition and it's a sports movie with lots of twists and turns and the fact that it's about homeless people is different so it's you know it's very upbeat i have a kind of bugbear about uh, ken loach <laughs> and i'm using him as shorthand but that whole thing of like poor people are always sort of victims in it and kind of objects of pity so i've been trying to find a way of telling a story about homeless people and addicts and chaotic people that showed them as lost potential rather than just charity cases And it's partly because uh two of my kids work in that field you know we work with homeless people and they had great stories and so we got quite involved in the homeless world cup and feel really strongly about it and i'm really thrilled that we finally got it made it's got bill nanny as the manager of the team and it was directed by thea sharak who's a young english much younger english female director she's got a lot of great energy she's brilliant
1: and are you currently working on a novel as well
4: i am yes i'm writing another children's book yeah but that's the film that's really sort of been quite a lot of hard work in the edit because of what I was saying before. So where's the best place to keep up with you and your work? I have a Twitter feed. Well, we are on Twitter, aren't we? So does that. Yeah. I guess that, you know, Twitter's good. Well, this was
1: great. Thank you so much for your time. I have
4: to, I'm so sorry. It's taken me so long to get around
1: to it. Don't sweat it. I really appreciate this. I'm envious of your beautiful British garden. I can hear all the birds (laughs) singing. right we are back and we're talking about code 46 and i just kind of wrote down a list of some of the films that this reminded me of we talked a little bit about some of them it was weird when i put on the movie last night my plex server it said a sci-fi version of brief encounter and i'm like really that's what you're going with of all the movies that we've talked about it's like we're going to talk about brief encounter but i guess i can kind of see it but i really can't at the same time it's like Starcross lovers, meeting on a train platform, so a little bit of that, but I don't think that, who is it, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard, I don't think they were mother and son as far as their DNA went.
0: Blade Runner is such in the popular mind, not just in cinephiles. You know, that's one of those films that indelibly is has, for whatever reason, imperfect or not, final cut or not has just gone on. Uh, but, you know, most sci-fis get bogged down in this technical talk, and Code 46 doesn't, despite the fact that it has all this this lingo. It's really just about two people who have an intimate relationship with each other. And, you know, that's why Blade Runner has gone on, because of the connection between Sean Young and Harrison Ford, and what their relationship is and how they characterize it. And I think that's why Star Wars has gone on. And I think that's why Interstellar succeeded. The sci-fi that had just an enormous amount of empathy, like you were saying before. The new Star Trek franchise is this enormous success. There's some technical talk in it, but it's really about platonic relationships going to this next more dedicated level. And the new string of TV shows, Star Trek TV shows, are, are bombs. They can't get past a season or two. And it might be because they're lacking this very simple thing. And code 46, particularly that that first love scene in which they don't know what they're that they're violating code 46. There are these close-ups of Samantha Morton that are very erotic. And they're they're going to great lengths to portray to the audience what it is that he sees in her, the sensuality and in, in being intimate that's that's conveyed very well. And I think that completely sells it because initially upon the first viewing, you know, well, what is Tim Robbins in this movie? Forty six. What is she? Twenty six. 20, She's half his age and half his height, too. Absolutely. And that's a long-standing problem in Hollywood. You know, they they like to put May December relationships on screen. So I'm not going to start bitching about, you know, don't like this movie because of that but that connection is is bridged and you forget about all of that you forget about all the reasons why they shouldn't be together and i think that's uh, largely result of the cinematographer and the focus puller and winterbottom making making that scene a
1: success you mentioned the shots of her there are some interesting i would say almost pov shots of her especially in the second time that they have sex but the first time i noticed it was when they're in the bar there are some Very full head-on shots of her talking to almost us as the audience. But I'm guessing that it's supposed to be Tim Robbins' POV. But those, you know, we mentioned the editing, the way that we will move positions and shoot her from other angles, but every once in a while we'll get this POV shot as well. And it just, I found that an interesting choice to make and really kind of puts us, you know, in his shoes, but then to put us in his shoes during that second sex scene when you know, What you're doing here is wrong, Tim Robbins. You know who she is and you know what you're doing. You have this poor woman, and you know, I'm not trying to kink shame or anything, but the whole thing of her being tied up to the bed, I'm just like, this seems a little exploitative, what you're doing here. And then, yeah, like pulling down her pants and you get that crotch shot and all that. I'm just like, and she's, and I have to say it, she is, you know, smooth as a baby's bottom when it comes to that. So that also kind of puts that whole age thing in light too. I'm just like, Okay, she's definitely of age, but her body doesn't look like it is. So this makes me even more uncomfortable. And then to give me POV shots, I'm just like, I am really uncomfortable with this. But bravo to you, Michael Winterbottom, for making me feel this way. That's something that the
0: practicality of what you do on set in that circumstance, I don't even I don't even know. I mean, we're we're just now getting into an age of production companies hiring intimacy coordinators. To make sure that both parties feel comfortable enough to get into this scenario, one of the most amazing things I'd I'd seen anyone admit to was the director Kevin Smith was holding a forum on uh, The Breakfast Club when they had the entire cast there and asked Molly Ringwald if if that was really her panties that were in the shot under her skirt and she said no and Smith said to everyone's shock and laughter, this completely inappropriate response, which was, well, then whose panties have I been masturbating to for 25 years, which was absolutely horrible. And everyone laughed at it. And then Ringwald, like there's this long pause because you can tell she's like amazingly shocked at it. And she's like, well, it was, the, I think it was like the second assistant director, but it was one of the, one of the women on set who consented to it. Like, well, we need to show somebody's panties for this shot to, and We can go, we're not going to get into a a big, long diatribe about what John Hughes has done and what she's not done and Marley Ringwald's famous article in Vogue a couple of years ago and all of that. But this could have been one of those circumstances where we need someone to be on camera for this five-second shot who in the production is willing to do this, right? And you know it's going to be uncredited, and there's probably only three or four people who know. And Winterbottom is famous for, for running a production, like having maybe six or seven people on set when you know that every production in hollywood has 50 plus right so who that person is doesn't ultimately matter uh, is we're assuming that that person is of consensual age but what you do see mike you're right what you do see emphasizes this age difference between them and is it makes you uncomfortable it could be part of the distanciation that we see
6: it's surprising to me i'm actually just that just because morton is a performer who has chosen to you know bear herself <laughs> many times and even before code 46 so but i was reading interviews and and, and hearing uh hearing reports that uh, that those scenes were were the last basic basically the last shots of the the film the last things they worked on and that it was very difficult because by this point tim robbins and samantha morton were not we're not really getting along (laughs) and it's hard to do hard to do these kinds of scenes with, you know, dredge up this kind of chemistry with, with someone that you're having a a strained relationship with. So I wonder if, yeah, she was on board to do it at one point in the movie and then they just got, got to the day. It was like the baggage of the production. Maybe was like, can, you know, can somebody else (laughs) do this? I don't know. I'm not certain.
0: Well, that's even worse if she pulled out day of or day before. That makes the search for someone willing to perform that duty even more desperate and probably not a good idea for that person to volunteer. This is
6: actually the first time it's ever occurred to me in this podcast that it wasn't her. So, I mean, I think you're probably right that it probably wasn't because they did not show her face.
1: There's a very distinct cut in there. But then again, this this movie is filled with cuts, so it kind of fits as well. So the editing style of this, I was very, very happy with it.
6: Yeah, it does that dream thing the whole time. Am I watching a dream? Who's, whose point of view am I inside? And is it what's actually happening or what they're imagining or what they're trying to piece together in retrospect?
1: I haven't seen that many uh, Michael Winterbottom films, but you guys have. What other ones would you recommend that I check out?
0: Probably every one that I've seen. I saw Welcome to Sarajevo, I think, on VHS. I rented it in the mid-90s, and I'm one of those people, I'm sure I'm not the only one who did not understand the Yugoslav Civil War at all, but I saw a movie with Woody Harrelson in it, and it it was about Sarajevo, so I went ahead and watched it, Welcome to Sarajevo. And I, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, ostensibly, it's about a British reporter who goes to Yugoslavia to report on the war and is this very professional journalist who's trying to do this very cutthroat job. And by the end of, of the film, he becomes wrapped up into this personal journey that's that's involving many pe- people who he's built this relationship during the war. I recommend that a lot because it does show this political, this personal, personal, this political type of, of situation. And Harrelson is, it's not a cameo, but it is a supporting role and it's, it's very good. And then just last week I watched 24 hour party people and I had a blast. I thought Steve Coogan wrapped up Tony Wilson's character in a nutshell and how Tony Wilson for 20 years was the focus of the Manchester music scene. And it is filled with lines. My favorite one is, is looking down at that poor soul from the George division who, who hung himself and they later became. Well, I think it was the Mondays or something. And, but in 1977, he just couldn't take it and hung himself. And Steve Coogan is looking at this guy. He says, this man is the musical equivalent of Che Guevara. And you can think about that line all night. There were 20 lines like that in the film. And then, of course, I saw Cock and Bull Story as well, which was free on Amazon. I had a lot of fun with that. And Benedict Wong is in that as well.
6: Uh, yeah, I think all this stuff with Steve Coogan is is worth checking out. the The trip movies are fun, but they're pretty light. Uh, I actually I really enjoyed The Look of Love and yeah, Twenty Four Hour Party People. But I don't remember if it was Code Forty Six or it could have been his two Hardy adaptations, Jude and The Claim. Really, both blew me away when they were new and I, I think maybe i'd seen them before code 46 but i hadn't realized it was the same filmmaker in this world is is pretty good sort of a uh, travelogue movie similar to code 46 and the the uh, international borders being crossed and and by people on the you know very much on the outside and his latest uh that i've seen the wedding Guest with uh, Dev Patel. I I liked that
0: uh, a whole lot. I would I would recommend uh, any of those quite a bit. It's amazing to look at his output on IMDb or even on Wikipedia. That the man's like an English Fassbender. I mean he he chews out a movie almost every year. It's it's amazing to look at. It really is. His output is impressive. What I'd see like forty nine
1: credits being listed right now.
0: That's wild. Yeah, in the past 30 years. Yeah. You know, Welcome to Sarajevo was one of his first, and he did a lot of TV before that.
1: I think I saw his version of The Killer Inside Me, and I seem to remember liking that one.
0: I can't believe I didn't
6: mention it. I really do like that one. And as a Thompson fan, I I like it. And I know that several Thompson fans who don't don't care for it, but but I like that one quite a bit. And one that I just watched this week for the very first time, just trying to catch up on some of his other stuff, is Every Day. And that that really hit emotionally some of his movies are um more playful than they are emotional emotionally resonant for me but every day i think because it's about a a father being away from his family he's in prison and it's just sort of it was filmed the same way boyhood was the link later film where it's you know filmed over a course of like five years so you watch these little boys grow up I mean, he's got daughters too, but the boys I have boys and I was very focused on the boys in the in the film and and just some of the moments he catches and I mean they no little kid that age is that good an actor. he he had to have actually seen these kids having being up very upset about things and trying to hold it together and I mean they just uh, just broke my heart and I nearly burst into tears several times this week just thinking
0: about every day, but that was a new one to me, really enjoyed that. It's okay. I cry at every Richard Linklater film. The one thing that that got me about the Oedipal journey was the fact that the blinding still happens. He's blinded because he can't remember her.
6: Kept uh, looking for somebody he killed that was a father figure, but I didn't I didn't come up for a minute I thought, "Oh, maybe Damien means father in some language." But no. <laughs> I didn't didn't father Damien. Didn't find that. Well, there you go. Yeah, maybe maybe that was a nod
0: yeah, all this film is missing is Geld killing his father.
6: We've said how there's uh, so many things that are actually more thought out than they appear, and uh, you know the film feels very sort of loosey goosey. And you know the, the you are talking about the uh, Dylan, the way the subway trains seem to be going in in different directions, and and you know and and but thinking that that was um, that that was intentional. And I know that with twenty four hour party people. He's definitely, and certainly nine songs, he's definitely uh, someone who is uh, uh, music and, and current. Music is important to him. The music, and so the the cameo from Mick Jones, which could have just been a, a clever, hey, we got Mick Jones in this movie, <laughs> singing a song. I thought, actually, that works on so many thematic levels to the movie, the song he's singing should I stay or should I go is the tension of the whole the whole thing. And there's something too about between you know fate and instinct and you know the Sphinx and Samantha Morton's choice to just live in the in the moment and be guided by her heart or instinct or you know him him being on these these synthetic empathy and and having that drive him. The idea of a middle-aged man performing sort of live, what made him, you know, very famous when it was young and dangerous, you know, and he's out on sort of a... Performing live is this, you know, high-wire act where you got to nail it or it's going to be... And But here, of course, yeah, he's singing live, but it's it's a recorded track and it's, you know, we know how it's going to... Go. It's always going to be this way. And uh, so I, I thought that, that that was much more than just a, hey, can we get Mick Jones in here? Yeah, you know, we can. Uh, it, it worked. It worked on on some pretty, pretty subtle levels.
0: Well, in the scene directly before it, she says, you know, he, he says, I got to go. And she says, no, if you don't come with me, you're going to regret it. And during that scene, you see the look on his face, which he looks like a fifth wheel, like he doesn't belong there. So when that when Mick Jones is singing that song, you can see him contemplating, you know, I really should be going. And then she says after the fact, in some of her voiceover, she brings up the fact that you had to make this decision. And she was basically discussing the butterfly effect of if you knew where you were going, would you still have made all of these decisions? All of that is wrapped up into that song. It's not
6: something I thought about until I'd watched the movie several times. But, uh, yeah, impressed on that level.
1: And nobody's really paying attention. I mean, it's Mick Jones up there singing his one of his most famous songs. Hmm, but he's just another dude at a bar. Like, nobody's like, you know, hey, it's Mick Jones. It's just there and people are not paying attention to who's up on stage. It's doing something else. Because we're
0: also on the topic of genetics and self-determination. It's like this will and grace argument that's been going on for centuries. And Maria's self-determination is taken away at the end of the film because she's given this virus that controls her physical reaction to guilt. And I didn't want to bring this up because it seems so stupid to say, but I know a guy. And he's a doctor with Kaiser Permanente. And he's taking this genetics class at a university specifically to train him on how to treat patients. Uh, after reviewing their genetic code. And he knows immediately what this means um, if there is no universal coverage, right? And what are the insurance companies going to say? And at point, do you pull coverage for a child that you know isn't going to make it to the age of 20? Or to a cancer patient you know that isn't going to make it to stage four? Or you know that this person is predisposed to having emphysema when they hit 45, specifically 45 years of age. So at the age of 20, you see him as a smoker and you think. I'm not going to do this, right? It's that type of situation that's going to come up increasingly in the future. And we're going to have to start worrying, maybe not specifically about Code 46, but these
1: type of Gattaca-like instances are going to continue to happen in our society. Some of them are happening right now. I love when he actually gets his DNA screened, and the woman's questions again interacting with the woman. This woman's questions to him very pointed about as far as do you know this person? You know, are you in a relationship with this person that he's you know brought this sample? How did you get her hair? You know, you must know them if it's their hair, and the whole thing too. If it's like, oh no, I'm trying to find this. <laughs> Person, you know, like he's this detective again, you know, doing this search for the missing daughter type of thing. He's he's now Philip Marlowe all of a sudden. But as he is getting his results, you hear the people next to him and you hear the woman saying, Oh, yeah, everything's fine, everything's good. And at first, I was like, Wait a second, are they what what's going on? Like, is she saying that to him? And I'm like, wait, no, I'm hearing the other people in the the next booth over, so I'd like that we hear their You're all set. Your code is fine, but wait a second for this guy. And he's about to get the real bad news here. Getting yourself genetically screened before deciding to have a kid. I mean, it's mandatory for some people. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of genetic abnormalities and things that you have to always be careful of. I mean, I know that I've got a lot of Jewish friends, and that's the thing. is like there is a predisposition to a certain thing where you come together with the wrong person, and you're going to have a kid that has a really awful birth defect. So
5: Tay-Sachs disease, or TSD for short, is a lysosomal storage disorder caused by a mutation in a gene on chromosome 15, which codes for a lysosomal enzyme called beta-hexosaminidase A, or HEXA for short. This results in progressive symptoms of central nervous system, or CNS, degeneration, like decreased muscle tone, visual difficulties, and seizures, which usually begin by 3-6 to months of age, proceeding to death by age 4. TSD is an autosomal recessive genetic condition, so males and females are affected equally. This also means that TSD tends to occur in isolated, inbred populations or communities, which accounts for the predominant occurrence of the disease in infants of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage and in certain French-Canadian, Amish, and Cajun populations.
0: The 23andMe is very close to that, where you can mail in your, your, your DNA and, and have it tested. And we're not too far from, from this idea of going into a strip mall and having something like this done. And we already have a DNA registry for criminals, and the case that comes to mind is that that poor woman who is the lead singer of the gits, the Seattle band, who was on her way home after a gig at two o'clock in the morning and she was raped and murdered. And no one had any clue who did it until the perpetrator was caught doing something completely different, was convicted of a felony. And so they took his DNA and put it in a registry and then her case popped up. And so he was prosecuted without a witness, without any collaborating evidence, not even knowing if he was in Seattle at the time solely on the basis of every woman that he had ever been with, he abused. That sold it to the jury. And he's serving, I don't know, well, he's not serving. I think he died in prison a few years ago. And I mean, that was 2001 or
3: 2002
0: when he was convicted of that. So I mean, that's 20 years ago. So we're already barreling towards this future.
6: Mike, I did like that you said apps, because it reminded me these viruses, we call them apps, you know, they're, they're not so biologically, you know the 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 William Gibson thing, where it's it's the the tech that plugs directly into your body. But the um, but it uh, yeah, you, you got it. We got an app for that. We got a virus for that. We got a. Uh, it reminded me too of a Jonathan Latham novel called gun with occasional music where um people have an external i mean it, it's it's more like a siri or something like that that they talk to so they don't have to really have a memory <laughs> or anything they just they just ask siri how do i feel how do i know this person <laughs> what do i <laughs> remind me how i feel about this that and this incredible amount of information that we no longer have to, that is accessible to us you know or the matrix where you know I need to fly a helicopter, you know, download that for, Oh, I know Kung Fu. I, you know, it's becoming more and more of a, more and more of a thing that, um, of course in gun with occasional music, I think the, the point was being made that, uh, they, yeah, nobody, nobody remembered anything anymore because it was all accessible anytime. It, they didn't have to, they could just pull it up externally anytime they, they needed to this idea that, you know, my kids, look at the world in a totally different way than I do, I'm still not to the point where, I mean, I would like to get to the point where my, my first instinct when I encounter a problem in the house is I should go to YouTube. Somebody probably can tell me exactly how to fix this. <laughs> you know, there's this accessibility to, to knowledge and, and and technology uh, or through technology that is still not instinctual to me, but, but it, it is, more and more the, the way of the world, uh, the way of the future. And, and I, I just, I love that it's an actual virus interacting with your biology and in, in uh, this movie, but yeah, essentially they just, I get an app for that.
0: Well, that comes up in the Bourne legacy as well, right? Like um, what's his name? Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner. He admits that he was not intelligent enough to get into the program uh, based on his his IQ co- his intelligent quotient alone, uh, but he had the physical regimen that fit. So they gave him a virus for the for the physical side of it, and it and it burned through and it took. So he he has that part of it, but he never finished the pill regimen for the uh, for the intelligence quotient. So that was part of that plot. Was Rachel Vice had to give him that, and then they had to wait, I think, twenty four or forty eight hours for that to take, for that to burn through, so he could be quick because he didn't have the pills anymore. You know, I thought, even when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's similar to Code 46. And you know, when that becomes possible, there's going to be a pretty penny to pay to learn Mandarin. But on the technical side of things, Jededai, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I work in a technical field and I still to this day have do not find it instinctual to jump to YouTube. I'm an academic by training at working in a technical field that has nothing to do with my humanities major and it's just not my nature to immediately pull up the internet to find something i want to find a book that i can read that will tell me what to do that might be because we're all it looks like these xers who are moving forward in this technical world right we remember what it was like to have a phone book and a card catalog system
1: i've got so many coworkers that are so young and it's just like oh, when I wrote a papers in high school, I couldn't use Wikipedia. And I'm like, oh, my God, Wikipedia was a thing for you. Okay. You know, I had, yeah, I had to go down to the library and look in the encyclopedia.
6: The first time I had a high school assignment that was required to be typed, I just about lost my shit. I had to go find a friend who had a typewriter or computer and a printer that I could use. I had to go, like, I had to spend money to get something printed up somewhere. You know, I turned in this report that was handwritten. It was 10, 15 pages long handwritten, And I had to go do it all over again. And I thought, this is insane.
0: So, yeah. Preserving the bottom of the paper for footnotes. On a roll, typewriter was
1: the craziest thing I've ever done. I mean, now you get your memories show up on Facebook every day, and it's just like, what was I even talking about? What was this?
6: <laughs> and they're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost every single one in ten years. You know, today's going to come up, and it's going to be uh, Clarence Thomas wants to rid of LGBTQ rights, and it's like, okay, so are we going to be in that world, or is it? Are we going to turn the corner? The production on
0: on this looks really scary. And I saw that interview with, with Tim Robbins where he talked about how they had to jump out of a van and shoot something on a sidewalk and then jump into the van. And, I mean, that sounds really cool, but he looked traumatized by it. He said there were a couple of days there that were really sketchy. Now, I'm assuming that they were doing this in Shanghai because that's where the majority of those, those opening street scenes are. And of course, in China, anywhere in China, you can get mobbed really quick if you're famous. And uh, and we talked before about Bruce Lee taking the Star Ferry and how, how unlikely that was. But as as we know now, that wound up being the truth. I, I don't know how likely it is that Tim Robbins would be mobbed on the streets of Shanghai in 2003 or 2002. Uh, but you know, if he did that in New York, it'd be it'd be fairly quickly. And in New York cares about about film permits. Look at Looking for Richard by Al Pacino back in the early 90s. When he did that documentary where the cops come by on camera and say, "Shut it down now." right So like you were saying before about the Chinese bureaucracy, if they weren't getting film permits and they, were running, they would have to get out of the van and get back in fast. And when they were saying small, like there's small sets, there were there were two actors. You have to have a cinematographer. I'm assuming that Winterbottom was there. And the farther away the camera was, you're going to have to have a focus puller. So that's a crew of five. If there's any dialogue, you're going to have to have a boom man. And if the boom man can't carry his recording equipment, that's seven people. That's a pretty small setup for a scene. That's extraordinarily small, right? If you're
1: not going to overdub it. That's impressive. All right, gentlemen, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. This is Orson Welles. Rather stunned, Orson Welles, I've just witnessed a sight astonishing even for this era of
6: atomic wonders. I saw Scott Carey, a man normal in every respect, shrink inch by inch into a minuscule world of monstrous terror. Now imagine if you can your own emotions. If you lived a nightmare in a universe populated by giants where a quiet footstep
2: can trample you, where each stair becomes an unscalable cliff. Each tiny crevice, a plunging abyss, and a common house cat, a voracious
1: beast of prey. This incredible story is told in an astounding
6: motion picture. The Incredible Shrinking Man. See
5: See, see, see,
2: the Incredible incredible, Shrinking shrinking, shrinking, man, man, Man. That's
1: right. We'll be back next week with a look at The Incredible Shrinking Man, or at least I hope we will. He was just here a moment ago, and I can't seem to find him. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host Jedediah and Dylan. So, Dylan, what is the latest with you, sir?
0: Well, I'm halfway through finishing about three different books. I'm working on my next episode of the Super 70 podcast, my commentary cast. I'm on Twitter at that Dylan Davis, and that's the same address as my website if you want to check for blogs and film reviews. I'm also on Letterboxd.
1: And Jed, please don't tell me that you've been up to nothing. you got to give me something to work with here, buddy.
6: I'm trying to figure out how to use this phone that I'm talking to you on. This is my very first cell phone. My son is going to college in a few weeks, and I wanted to be able to use a cell phone by the time he left the house. So that is my project. I don't have a computer anymore. I've just got this thing. My tweets look like shit because I can't type with my thumbs. But um, yeah. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to say much because I can't. <laughs> it's so laborious a, a thing to send a tweet anymore. Uh, but, you know, hopefully in a couple, few months, I'll get
1: better at it. Pretty soon you'll be voice to texting. That's what I do a lot. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Some weird stuff shows up on screen. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shouting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, or Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.